What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Downtime with Downstar. Episode 99. Wow. Bro, this is one. One away from the big number. I'll be back for 100. Let's do it, man. We can do that tonight <laughs> from an undisclosed location. There you go. <laughs> the bar. But guys, today is a super special podcast. We've been working on this one since SEMA. Yeah, last year, and that was probably like going to be episode five or something. But uh, today we're sitting down with Brian Gillespie of Hasport. Brian, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. Man, you've uh, you've been on the move lately, dude. You've been doing a lot of media. I've been trying. Yeah, it's kind of weird with the demise of the magazines. We've yeah. been trying to expand in other areas and try to push out that way and get the message out on how to do the honda swap right yeah i mean so definitely man so for people listening right now that uh aren't familiar with with you or the business can you give us like a quick rundown yeah hasport started uh 21 22 years ago doing uh, uh engine swaps initially and then we got into manufacturing mounts because we had difficulty getting them in a timely fashion. So we started manufacturing mounts. That was back in 99, 98, 99. And uh, then from there, we just kind of uh, just, we stopped working on other people's cars and just started manufacturing. We just started making mounts. And then uh, I started doing wiring harnesses too, because we found out that the big problem wasn't the mounts. The big problem was actually the wiring harnesses, getting the engine properly wired in the car. And we, uh, so we started doing that as well. And that was actually kind of funny. I would do those in my garage at night. I would sit there and listen to Loveline. Oh, shit. (laughs) Loveline. Yeah, from 10 o'clock until, you know, midnight and make wiring harnesses and then bring them back to work. And we'd sell those along with the mounts. And then, uh, uh, then we started, you know, just selling other little pieces and stuff like that that all went along with the, uh, with the engine mounts. So So you're um, the mountain guy. I'm the mountain guy. Oh, yeah, Yeah. man. Actually, the mountain guy is our logo. (laughs) Dude, I really didn't know that the logo was actually a mount. Until you saw the Instagram post. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sure I'm not the only one, right? No, absolutely not. It was a lot of people are like, uh, oh, that's what that is. It's funny. My wife's like, you keep telling me that this is an engine mount. Can you show me what you mean? So I grabbed a mount and grabbed a couple bolts. I set them on the ground next to her desk. And she's like, oh that's my post today <laughs> oh man and that's yeah. the shirt that you're wearing right yeah, now dude exactly it, now that you look at it it's kind of hard to even see it as a skull <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah really, really once cool. you see what it's actually yeah it's like okay that's kind of obvious now you know that's very creative man i like it a guy by the name of mario minwari did it he actually mm-hmm. does uh logo design and stuff like that at the time i believe he worked for oakley oh really yeah and uh we had a contest we gave out a mount kit for whoever had the the best design, he won. He uh, redesigned the Hasport uh, font as well, yeah. and uh, also did this Mount Man. So uh, uh, we adopted it, and it's been with us ever since. That's probably well over fifteen years ago. Wow! Uh, yeah, that's crazy, man. Um, you're an OG in this. That's what people keep telling me. <laughs> yeah, definitely, man. You've helped out a lot of people make their dreams come true. Thanks. I mean, that was kind of the general idea was to try to make sure that it worked. You know what I mean? Because we knew we'd sell more mounts if, you know, people had success. You remember back in the day, back, you know, gosh, 20 years ago, you would give your car to a shop to have the swap done. You get it back two months later and they'd unplug the check engine light bulb. So you couldn't tell that it wasn't working properly. And, you know, the VTEC worked with an RPM activated switch and they would reflash, you know, the prom with yeah. some more gas at a particular RPM. And that was 
that was your VTEC, you know, and that was your engine swap. And then, yeah, yeah so uh, a couple guys had figured out, you know, the proper wiring and I had all the manuals. So I just sat down with them and just chugged it out and figured out what was going on. And we, that's why we started selling the wiring harnesses. And, uh, and it was funny too, cause we would just go every few months. I would talk to the magazines, in California, like, Hey, you guys want to do engine swaps? I know you're not really covering them in the magazines. You know, I'll be happy to, you know, share the secrets and everything. And I'm like, okay, yeah, well, we got some shops here. We're working with California. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Hmm. You know, great. And then uh, after a couple of years, they got tired of waiting for the shops to share their secrets. Because it was kind of funny. Back in the day, the California shops didn't really want to share the secrets on how to do it. You know, they were kind of, you know, they didn't want to lose business, so to speak. So they weren't really willing to sell, you know, share that. And I'm yeah. like in the motor mount business. So I'm like, I want to sell more mounts. So I want more people to have success. So yeah. uh, we finally talked uh, Dave Coleman, a sport compact car, into coming out. He sent uh, John Tholley and a writer, Mark Warner, I believe it was. Uh, out to Arizona we did three swaps in a weekend and they got back and they're like this is amazing this is great so over the next like six months they put them all out in the magazine the sport compact car it was called the hybrid how-to series you remember that and then uh, they would do uh, that and they sent them out again we did another three swaps and we did that like three times so we had you know this you know backlog of swaps that they could put in every month and that kind of put Hasbro on the map you know we were somewhat popular because there was a hybrid page, which was a forum for this kind of stuff. Honda Tech was kind of new at the time, I believe, but um, we were starting to get more and more customers from around the U.S. And you know, the thing, the magazine thing, just actually, you know, set it off. It was just huge after that. What year was this? I want to say 2000, maybe 99, 2000. Whoa. So uh, actually, it would have been 99 because it was the year before we incorporated. So at the time, we had Honda Auto Salvage, our salvage yard. And uh, my brother Keith was doing mostly that. And then uh, Joe Sawyer and I and uh, Trion Giorgio uh, were Hasport Performance. And we were actually at a different uh, building. And uh, uh, we were making just basically H series mount kits for uh, 92 to 5. My phone loves it whenever I say series. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, so uh, um, we were doing H series mounts kits for like EG and we were doing the auto, uh, we were using the cable hydro yeah, conversions yeah, yeah, yeah. and the B series for the um, 88 to 91. That was a huge seller back then. We were selling like 60 kits a month, you know. Yeah. And wow. uh, uh, we did um, start doing stock replacement mounts at the time too. So uh we bought a cnc machine originally we were just having all the like pieces of um, sheet metal about three eighths of an inch thick water jetted out and then we weld up the mounts they were all aluminum and then we started machining like one part of it because it was easier than water jetting it and it was stronger and then once we got that down we're like oh we can machine more and so then eventually we bought a a mill and we started machining everything and then it just kind of grew from there so so pretty big. before we get deep into Hasport, mm-hmm. um, one of the reasons I actually wanted to even start podcasting was because of the uh, Do It For A Living podcast. Oh, yeah. Weren't those great? Yeah. and um, I, In fact, they still do them, but not as, yeah. Well, <laughs> they were more Honda-oriented at first, and they were great. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where, yeah. but uh, Yeah, ever... Ever since Reed stopped doing it, it kind of changed the dynamic right. of things. You know, I kind of had an um, 
like an attraction to read because I knew what he was doing in the community. So it was somebody in our community, mm -hmm. uh, our community meaning the Honda community, and then providing this uh, platform for business owners like yourself to tell their stories. And yeah, man, when when that came out, it was like. It was mind blowing, dude. And just to hear all the stories, uh, I three memorable ones is you, uh, Dave, Sue, mm -hmm. and uh, John from K Tune. Right. So um, I remember listening to yours, and when you told when you told the story about your career before cars, I was like super surprised, you know, because you hear people say someone of yourself who has a successful business, you think that that's all that they've ever done you know but um you had a whole life before yeah but i don't know if i don't remember if i went through this i used to race motorcycles when i was younger okay and then i was a honda mechanic at a local dealership uh, for motorcycles yeah. and uh that was kind of the precursor and then i went in the service and then when i got out of service i just happened to pick up tennis as a woman i'm mm -hmm. sure you're talking about yes. tennis so uh and for whatever reason i really took to it and about Four or five months after I started playing, I actually started teaching. Them. Yeah. Uh, the 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 pro that was there at the club was like, you know, I need some help. You want to help out? And he thought I'd been playing a number of years because I was there like every day. And uh, um, so I did that for like 17 years. So uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So and that was great. I loved it. And it was all about teaching. Mm -hmm. It was all about you know helping kids get scholarships and teach. i had you know huge junior programs 200 kids plus you know uh, all the time and we had uh sometimes five pros working for me at the time and i was at you know a number of clubs around the valley and it was it was a great time it was really fun and it, i think i explained there uh when my son turned four you know he was going to start school mm -hmm. and up until that time i would be off you know from you know, 10 o'clock in the morning until about three o'clock in the afternoon. So I'd be home with him, you know, but then he was going to be at school at those times and mm -hmm. I was going to be working early in the morning and late, you know, late into the evening. And my wife's like, that's not going to work out. You know, you're never going to see your kid. And I'm thinking, you're right. Yeah. So she asked me to get another job. So I went to work at the salvage yard, which I hated. Yeah. You know, it was uh, profitable and it worked well, but it just wasn't, you know, I came from, you know, teaching tennis, which is a little bit more, I want to say, don't want to say glamorous, but that's really, cleaner. Yeah, cleaner. <laughs> yeah. But it was a little bit more, you know, it, just a different vibe, you know, altogether. So yeah, cleaner. <laughs> so true. It was sweaty though. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> we uh, uh, we did that. I did that for that first year, and then I was, then my brother had this company called HAS Motorsports uh, Honda Auto Salvage is the name of our company. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. HAS. So we decided we wanted to. Uh, he started that company so we could. Uh, right off his racing because mm -hmm. he had a 90C Rex. He was road racing at the time and, and we'd go to nationals every year at SCCA. And so uh, I decided to, you know, I would take his car to the track while I was building mine and I would go to the drag strip on the weekends and people would start coming to me and talking to me. And I, then from there, I met all the people from the hybrid webpage. I don't know if you guys remember that mm -hmm. from back in the day. And uh, Adrian Teal happened to be uh, local there. He was one of the administrators of the site and he worked at ASU as a IT guy. So uh, Adrian was, um, would come by and stop by and we talk and, and, you know, he was super excited to see somebody local, you know, kind of you know, doing this kind of stuff. So he helped out quite a bit and, and uh, helped out with our 
you know, early internet pre presence and stuff yeah. like that. So, so yeah. at that time, what were you guys doing at the auto salvage? What was your well, main thing? The main thing was just selling Honda parts. You okay. know, we had a salvage yard that where Keith, because he had specialized in Honda so long, would not let people come and pick their own parts out of the car because mm -hmm. people would like bend fenders in order to get a piece of belt molding on. Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. would always take the part off from them. We were a little more expensive than other salvage yards, but you know, we would sell everything. We'd sell, you know, throttle cables were in good shape. We would sell ECUs that were in good shape. We would sell, you know, all the engines were tested, all the transmissions were tested, all the the fenders we pulled off, you know, things like that. So we were kind of popular with the um, companies like, uh, you know, body shops and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Or, and the other thing we had a reputation for is people would come buy parts from us and they would go, oh, I need this little valve and we'd go, really? We've never sold that. Are you sure? And they're like, yeah, my mechanic says I need this valve. And we're like going, no, I don't think you need that. We think you need this part over here because we sell a lot of these and we never sell these. And the hmm. guys are like, well, my mechanic says, I'm like going, okay, we're going to sell it to you. But when you come back, bring the part back in receipt because we're going to trade it back to you for a credit, but bring oh, the same wow. part. We're going to mark it, you know? And then people would, after a while, they'd be going, are you a mechanic? And we're like, no, we're not mechanics, more like statisticians, you know, <laughs> yeah. so uh, uh, people would, you know, so we got kind of a reputation for, you know, helping people out. And then at that time, I would start going to like um, California and picking up the JDM engines and stuff like that, because at that time you could get, you know, B16s for a couple hundred bucks yeah. and ZCs, wow. you know, for, you know, $150, $250 with transmission, you know, and so I would go to this place called Kwat Navi and these other places down by the pier and I would just, you know, rummage around the back and grab you know engines and stuff like that and i'd bring back half a dozen to arizona every month you know and we'd sell them off so you know we started getting uh you know the salvage yard did well and then we started kind of getting a reputation for the performance stuff as well on top of that and then from there you know just paying attention you know you noticed all this explosion of stuff in california and yeah uh, and i'll be here's something else kind of weird I got into tennis in the 80s, and when I did, I was very aware of the tennis boom in the 60s, mm -hmm. and I'd always thought, man, if I'd have got in on the boom, I would be freaking huge. Yeah. I would be making, you know, six figures all the time, you know, and this would be an awesome thing to do. So when the import thing came along, I went, whoa, this is just like the tennis boom was in the 60s. We need to, you know, I was thinking to myself, we need to get to the top of the ladder because right now the ladder's only two rungs tall. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then the ladder builds underneath you and you just kind of ride it up. So mm -hmm. we made a super hard effort to get in on the ground floor and, and, you know, be known at the very beginning so that as a business built, you know, we built it with it. So, so what kind of signs did you see that uh, made you foresee what the community was going to become? Having raced motorcycles when I was younger and having been aware of surfing and had been aware of skateboarding, I noticed that the trends would quite often start in California and they'd sweep across the rest of the U.S. So things that got super popular in California would almost inevitably then stretch, then go to certain places like on the East Coast, and then they would just kind of kind of fill in the middle of the U.S. from there. So I kind of knew how the, the trend worked generally mm -hmm. uh, from having watched other things, you know, fashion trends and 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 language it was really cool because you would see certain terminology come up in colleges on the west coast and then that language would slowly kind of sweep out to the rest of the nation. you know like hmm. words like gnarly and stuff like mm -hmm. that you would you would just watch it you know be replicated across the u.s and people would start saying it and, and it had to do with 
the fact that the West Coast, West Coast culture would be such a driver of things like um, uh, movies and television shows and stuff like that. So uh, a lot of people look to the West Coast for the lead, you know, at the time. So it was just one of those things where it was like, it just was like a light bulb. And I'm like going, this is going to be big, you yeah. know. And then all of a sudden the magazine started popping up and I'm like, this is really going to be big, you know. And it was just one of those things where right place, right time. Yeah. Honestly. So, so yeah. before, uh, so you quit doing tennis mm -hmm. and you went to go work with your brother. Mm -hmm. So around that time, did you have any passion for Hondas or was it just? I was actually a Volkswagen guy. Okay. I had a square back that I had recently traded for a GTI. Mm -hmm. And my, and the reason I did that was, uh, my brother was friends with these guys that had this Volkswagen salvage yard pretty nearby. So I got a really good deal on a on a GTI and I would buy parts for it and stuff like that. And they were good handling and, and fun cars. And I, my brother was racing a, a Volkswagen at the time. This was a few years before the salvage yard. So I had the GTI for a while and I was, you know, playing around with that and it was fun and sporty and great, you know, hot hatch, you know, type thing. We, I also had friends that had Hondas at the time. I remember a kid with a 79 Accord hatchback that I thought was a beautiful car. 79? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. It was just a, I just thought that that was a timeless looking, really nice looking car. And then uh, another friend of mine bought a 91, uh, a 91 CRX that was a couple years old. And I was just like, wow, that's just a phenomenal looking car. That is such a beautiful car. And then uh, I remember in 96, when the um, 96 hatchback came out, I was just, wow, that's just crazy cool looking. You know, it looks like a, a really streamlined version of my GTI. You yeah. Know? So I was like, you know, I was always interested in them, but you know, I wasn't really, you know, into them at the time. Uh, but having raced Hondas, because I had CR125 and CR250 when I was uh, 16, 17 years old, um, I I knew the Honda engineering, I knew the Honda race pedigree, so I had a lot of respect for that vehicle, and and those great looking cars just you know absolutely you know excited me about it. But I didn't ever really think I was going to buy one because. At the time, I was, you know, spending a lot of money with my kid. My wife drove a, a minivan, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I had, a, I had a GTI, which was about as sporty as we were going to get. But then when my brother said, hey, if you come to work for me, I'll let you build a race car. I'm like, <laughs> and he was just building a 91 CRX for a race car. And I was just like, that's what I'm going to do. That's just cool as hell. So, yeah. Yeah. So we found an old 89, you know, Civic with a blown motor. And uh, I started putting it together, you know, and... Uh, was you know getting ready to make that my race car so yeah. yeah so about this time um well not just this time all time how what is the relationship like with you and your brother and how far are you guys apart in oh uh, we're one year one year uh, he's oh, younger. Wow. okay he's younger okay uh he uh has always been generally had a much better job than i did i always did things that i like to do rather than things that you know made me a lot of money. Gotcha. Uh, luckily the tennis thing worked out cause I was pretty good and, uh, at teaching and people liked me. So that was actually a decent living. Uh, but Keith was like more had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. He was, uh, like Red Lobster's youngest general manager when he was a young kid. And then wow. he went on to a business that was doing leasing, but he didn't really like it cause he felt like he was taking advantage of people. So then he went into a salvage yard, Oh, and I'm sorry. And then he had, for a short period of time, a, a Volkswagen repair facility. This is when he was racing uh, a Volkswagen uh, Rabbit, uh, like a Gen 1 Rabbit or Mark 1 Rabbit, I think mm -hmm. they call it. And uh, so he was, 
you know, into the car thing. And, uh, then his, uh, uh, had like a partnership with a guy who did a Volvo salvage yard. So he kind of got, you know, figured out how to make money doing the thing. And then when, uh, that ended up, he allowed himself to, that guy had plans to do something else with his business. So he bought my brother out and then, uh, he went on to do the, the Honda salvage thing. Cause he knew the Hondas were really popular and, and do that. So, so he knew early enough to just start with a honda auto, salvage, auto his salvage own yeah with his own salvage yard he decided that hondas were the thing uh, two reasons number one because so many people owned hondas remember yeah. the 86 9 core was just like you know everywhere and the 1993s were just hugely popular so he decided to do that plus his mother-in-law happened to own an 85 civic hatchback mm-hmm. which uh she was constantly bringing to him to for repairs uh because uh well not constantly but yearly yeah, yeah, yeah. yearly bringing him you know stuff for repairs. So he's like, well, these Hondas are pretty easy to work on. So I think I'll do a Honda salvage yard. So that's what he did. Yeah. And he had done, been doing that since 96 and I joined him in 98. So 98. So with, uh, you guys growing up so close to each other, we got along really good. Did he? Oh, that's not true. We used to fight like cats and dogs up until about 16. <laughs> 16. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, did you notice his, uh, entrepreneurial spirit at an early age? Oh Yeah. He was a guy that always got deals and everything. We would go, my dad was like into a bunch of stuff when he was younger. Like for a while, he, we were all into model airplanes. Mm-hmm. And we would go to these uh, airplane meets and these uh, places. And he would get the most smoking deals on shit. And it would just drive me nuts. <laughs> and I would be like, how do you do that? And mainly it was just, he recognized a good deal when he saw it. And he knew how to ask people and he knew how to, finagle with them and and he did a great job of getting smoking deals so yeah. he was born for that job i'm telling you right now he just was so good at it. in fact yeah. when i to this day when i tell him and i'm like going oh here's this really good deal on something like that and he's like that deal's not good enough you know, <laughs> he'll talk him down a little bit more <laughs> you know and so and my son's actually got that that gene so i don't know i don't know why it skipped me no, do you think it's something that you can learn or is it something that you think that people are just born with oh you can learn it i mean because i know there are certain techniques that you do in order to do that like when you're buying a car you never offer first you know what i mean you always let the other person you know say what they want you don't ever go yeah i'll give you such and such because that's that's not the price that's the starting point yeah you know what i mean yeah so you want to try and always frame things in the, you know that are favorable to you when you're when you're trying to get a good deal, yeah. you know? So, uh, uh, he just got that early on me. I'm like, you know, I ask for what I want, you know what I mean? And invariably wind up paying more than that. You know, I have learned since then I say, yeah, I'll give you X. And the other person's like, well, how about this? And I'll go, ah, never mind, And I'll walk away. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, now I'm, I, I don't want to, I don't want to play that game and I understand that game, but I just don't want to play that game. So, uh, but he's, he's good at it. He'll go like, well, how much will you give me? (laughs) Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And it's like, and you guys still work together to this day. Oh yeah. He, although he, he's, I, I believe he's ready to, to get out of the business. So, uh, um, so it'll probably be just me after a little while there. So got you. Yeah. No, I think he's he's ready to do something else for a while. Yeah. Now, having the business in Phoenix, mm-hmm. um, did you feel like you were close enough to California to to get like what was going on in the the SoCal community, or did you feel like it took a little time to to reach you guys? For the most part, yes. For the most part, it was an advantage because, like I said before, 
when I would go to California, I'd go to places like Pit Crew and Place Racing and some of those places. They were very happy to share secrets because they didn't perceive me as a threat. They mm-hmm. didn't. So, you know, it was they were they were very happy to share, you know, what this coolness was that was going on and and talk about it, you know. And I think if I had lived there, they may very well have thought of me as a possible competitor, and it, they wouldn't have been quite so open with me. Yeah. So, because uh, I remember talking to Charles Madrid early on in the day and uh, Gil Garcia from Place Racing, and they were all very, very, very open, you know. And uh, and it's funny, uh, the big the biggest mount manufacturer at the time was Place Racing, mm-hmm. and uh, Gil Garcia was doing quite a lot of stuff. And I would constantly order stuff from him, and, and just would take months to get it. And eventually, I got to the point where I was like, you know, don't you know, don't put the urethane in it. You know, I'd like to do my own urethane. Can I just get the housing? You know, it should just take you a little while to do this. You should be able to get this done quickly. I want 20 sets, blah, blah, blah. And he would be like, no, I can't do that for you. You know, and, and I'm just like, okay, here's my order. You know, get it to me as soon as I can. Okay, I'll have it to you in two weeks. And two weeks later, no, I'll have it to you. Another, uh, don't have it ready yet. Maybe next week. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, three months later, you know, wow. sometimes, well, he was busy filling his own orders. Yeah. You know, he had a shop where he was doing swaps and stuff like that. And I, I don't, I understand, but I don't think he had the vision to see that how big it could possibly be mm-hmm. and that he needed to scale up fast, you know? So, you know, after a bunch of times like that, my brother was like, we're in the mountain business. You, you need to start making mountains. I'm like, I can't do that to Gil. Gil's been a nice guy. I can't really do that to him. And my brother's like, no, no, we need to get in the mountain business. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. And then finally, at one point, I made a mount kit for the 84-7 Civic mm-hmm. uh, because Gil said he wasn't going to do that. So I remember making the kit, and I remember going back to California and, and talking to Gil about it. And I'm like, man, I said, I made this kit. That was pretty easy to prototype that thing. That worked out really good. And Gil says, I'm going to be pissed if you're going to be a competitor of mine. And I'm <laughs> like, dude, just fill my orders, and I'm not going to be a competitor. <laughs> and then, no, no lie, two weeks later, my brother's like, that's it. We're not buying. Cancel the order. Get an 88 to 91 Civic in here, make the mounts. We're in the mount kit business. So we started doing it and yeah. we started making the mounts. And I would say within a month, we were selling 40 kits a month. And a couple wow. years later, we're selling 100 kits a month of the 88 to 91s. And we did that for seven years, probably. Wow. It was just nuts how much that took off. And then we just kept adding other, you know, mount kits as we went along and stuff like that. So, so. how were you getting word of mouth out? The internet was the deal there. It was a hybrid web page. If, okay. you wanted, if you wanted to know, that's what you would do. But luckily also, pretty much when we started off, there was a, a, a young man who was a writer for uh, Grassroots Motorsports who wanted to do a ZC swap. And he comes to me and says, we we're just starting getting into it. And he said, hey, um, I want to do a ZC swap. Uh, I'll promote your company in um, Grassroots Motorsports if you want to do it. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's kind of cool. So we did his swap. You know what I mean? So we were in grassroots motorsports is doing an engine swap. And that kind of actually helped pave the way with Sport Compact Car and the other magazines that were, you know, in California, Turbo Magazine, stuff like that. And then um, we started going to the SEMA show and stuff like that. And that further kind of cemented us as a, a cemented our reputation as a, a you know, a, as an actual, you know, uh, business, you know, that was serious about it. You know, we weren't you know, a bunch of 20 year old kids trying to, you know, you know, sell a bunch of swap kits in California. We were actually, you know, older people treating it like a serious business. You know, we were, had a presence in SEMA. We used to go to, before Spoke, Spokecom, there was, um, now I don't remember what it's called, 
uh, uh, Tokyo, uh, I'm sorry, Auto Salon. Yeah. The, uh, the Auto Salon in California that was a sport compact. Well, I forget. They had a name. I can't remember what it was. But it was run by SEMA. And it was, uh, so we would be there every year. So, you know, the magazine would come by and they would see the cars we had in the booth. And they're like, oh, where are you guys located? Phoenix. Oh, Phoenix, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it didn't take long before we, you know kind of got in with them as well so so when you guys decided to make mounts uh <laughs> how old were you at that time 30 well let's see here i'm 61 so that would have put me at 40 40 so, uh, 40 39 wow. years old yeah so that's crazy man because a lot of people are listening to this right now that would love to be in your position and they're in their early 20s and you can do it in your <laughs> early 20s and then you can be like me when you're 40 you know yeah <laughs> probably with less wrinkles but uh <laughs> so uh, but yeah <laughs> so what what are some of the the uh growing pains that you guys had early in the uh the creation of passport i'll tell you what was hey ryan <laughs> i'll tell you what was probably we didn't have a lot of growing pains because we were on in the area when it was you know really accelerating so there was enough growth for everybody so it wasn't really ever a problem so mm -hmm. to speak well, i mean we had a few problems with companies popping up and copying our stuff you mm -hmm. know in the u.s mm -hmm. and then which eventually led to chinese companies copying our stuff so i would say those are probably the major issues kind of weird if you think about it there again it was such a growth stage that the the problems were pretty minor mm -hmm. you know they weren't really problems they were just you know minor bumps in the road you know nowadays with the it more of it a constant you know what i mean with a slower growth rate uh it's you know those same things that wouldn't that i wouldn't consider problems in might be problems now like yeah. in particular people copying stuff and things like that yeah so at those times um how did you deal with people that were copying your your we, parts right we, we made kind of a deal with a lot of people where we say if you want to carry hasport you can't carry any other billet mount kit mm. you know so that was one of the things we did um and uh at the time we had more mount kits than anybody else so that was kind of a, a good lever to have you know uh or so good leverage to um to have over uh some of the dealers we've always been a little more expensive than some of the other guys and that's probably because everybody sees that as a way to compete you know just charge less money kind mm -hmm. of thing uh so uh um but we never really worried about that much we were just trying to do that i would say the one mistake we did do and if i had it all to do again i would do it this way we went and talked to a patent attorney early on and he said uh, it's not worthwhile patenting you just need to promote yourself and grow your product and then you know move on to the next thing and at the time we we're thinking to ourselves well it's you know how long is this gonna last you know and what we really should have done and dave did this over at skunk uh we should have put design patents on our product so mm -hmm. that if people wanted to copy it fine but it doesn't look like our product mm -hmm. you know what i mean because if you look at the way we've got kind of the rounded shape with the flat sides on it all the other mount kit companies look like that you know what i yeah. mean and it's and it's one of those things where had we been able to keep a unique look and made other people do that it would be much easier to differentiate ourselves from other people and it and people would have had to work a little harder to copy this stuff you know rather than just basically say you know make this type yeah. of thing we did start patenting 
recently, we actually have come up with some uh, uh, utility patents that are unique, you know, in the industry, like the flip mount is one mm -hmm. of them, uh, so that we can actually protect our, you know, protect our products. And uh, uh, we've also started design patenting some of the, uh, the, the uh, parts so that it's not just a matter of them, you know, sending the part off and having it copied. Uh, it needs to, you know, they need to have a unique look. So yeah. that helps out a little as well. So, so besides like an annoyance, did you notice that these other companies coming along had an effect on, on your business? I'm sure they did. I mean, but it's, it, that's tough to measure. Um, we had steady growth up until the uh, economy took a dump mm -hmm. in 08. So that was kind of uh, the first year that there was a bobble and then nine was down. Um, and then I think we've been up every year since then. Gotcha. But probably not up as much as we could be, you know, but still we've been up every year since then. Yeah. So when did you notice that you guys had something more than uh, than just kind of a side business? Because obviously the uh, the salvage yard was the main business still, right? Yeah, we actually got rid of the salvage yard. We started, Hasport started in, um, uh, in 98 mm -hmm. as a name and as a website. And then by 2000, uh, we incorporated and it was a separate entity it was no longer like a dba for the salvage yard um it was a separate entity and then uh in um uh and then the next year Keith sold the salvage yard well he basically gave it to my little brother mark so okay. uh uh at that particular time we were like uh Keith said well you know the hasport's going too big i need to move over there and you know work so he basically came over and kind of assumed operations, which I had been doing up to the point. He, he had been doing the bookkeeping and I had been doing operations. So he kind of assumed the operations at that particular point. And then I just focused on, you know, new product development and promotion of the product. So, uh, so at this time, what are you guys thinking about the, the business like that to be able to quit the main business to start mm -hmm. on the well, side the sale, business and yeah. the side becoming bigger than the main. Right. Well, the main, I don't know if it actually has started to trail off slightly. I don't think it did. I think it's still doing well, but Hasport was showing so much growth and had exceeded the, the main business in profitability that he decided that that was where he wanted to put his focus. Were so, you guys surprised that that happened? I wasn't. Yeah. He you was. knew? Yeah. I always, I always thought it was going to be a big deal. I, yeah. I just was like, I was like, this is, you know, this is, this is a perfect opportunity. Here we are, ground floor. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. We're going to be doing this, you know. And I always thought we we're going to expand into other things other than Hondas, you know what I mean? So that was kind of another thing I kind of anticipated, although it never really happened. Um, so, uh, you know, I knew it was going to be, you know, I knew it was going to be a big deal. So I was, you know, I was more like, told you so, you know. Yeah. And, and Keith was like, this is great. You know, so... Uh, so yeah. the the first guy that you said that he was making the mounts and then mm -hmm. he didn't make them for the EF and you guys made them, um, did anything Actually, ever it was for the AF. He was making them for the EF. I was making them for the AF, the 8047. Okay, That's gotcha, the gotcha. first one I did it for. Gotcha. We were always ordering ones for EF, but he would never fill the order. Yeah. So so that was the second mount kit I developed, and, and that's kind of what really made us take off. Yeah. So what was the relationship like after that? I didn't really talk to him, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and I, I don't think I even had a chance to bump into him. You know, I, I stopped visiting his shop specifically. I don't remember if I apologized to him or anything like that. I can't remember what happened. So I just remember, uh, and then I would say probably within two years, he was doing like fabrication for farm equipment. Mm -hmm. He just decided to get out of the business, but 
you know, we were growing leaps and bounds and, and, and had a, you know, a bunch of articles starting, you know, and stuff like that. So I just really didn't get a chance to talk to him after that. You know, I think I stopped by a couple of times to talk to him. Actually I did. I remember stopping by several times and he was never there anymore. I would, I would go by and I wouldn't see his dually out front. He has this really cool lower dually and I would go by there and he wasn't there. So I'd pop in try to say hi. Nobody was, you know, they were, you know, working on stuff, but not really, you know, anything there was a guy you remember robert green no uh you remember him uh he used to be an employee of gill so uh um so i would bump into him occasionally and stuff like that and you know he would tell me what gill was doing but you know he just kind of got out of the scene and started doing different things and you know and i just never really saw him again i've 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 looked for him but i you know just haven't haven't seen him i don't want to and i didn't want to rub it in his face or anything like yeah that. i just yeah, wanted to yeah. say i just wanted to say hey you know uh I wish things had worked out differently because he had a nice product and he was doing pretty good. I just think he made a few little errors, you know, like that. And, you know, unfortunately, the big one was not, you know, supplying product as quickly as he could. So I think that kind of made a, you know, yeah, that's what made us. That's what put Houseware on the, on the board. So. so then you start making the mounts. Everything's going great. Mm -hmm. What what was the next thing that you seen coming along that you thought that this was going to be another big opportunity? Well, that's about when Fast and Furious came out. You know what I mean? And that, that just kind of more reinforced what was going on. And, and in reality, at that particular time, I wanted to branch out into turbos and superchargers and stuff like that. But my brother didn't want anything to do with that. He was like, no, no, this is enough. We've got enough on our plate. So I, I'm not really sure why he decided that. But I'm like, we did start doing some headers, actually. Mm -hmm. We did headers for a short period of time, but he wouldn't. He didn't want to go to somebody who made a really nice high quality header he was like oh budget header these will be inexpensive people will buy these and i'm like <laughs> okay <laughs> so uh uh but i wanted to you know hasport performance you know performance i'm thinking to myself you know there's so many things we can do we've got a really good reputation if we do turbos right you know that's going to help if we do superchargers right that's going to help and then i i watched all these other companies come on you know and start doing this stuff and i was just like that could be us that could be us, <laughs> could be us. so d you felt like you had a more hold of the uh the community and your brother was just more focused on like the right. business aspect I, of things and he's more conservative than i am in a lot of ways so uh it you know i would have been i may have overdone it at that particular time but it would have been nice to be somewhere in between what he wanted what i wanted i think it would have worked out well for both of us so uh but you know yeah so when did you guys start doing the uh k-series mounts when did you realize that the k-series was going to be something uh something big i think the k-series came out and i remember looking at it and thinking to myself you know how are we going to get that in the current day cars you know what what are we going to do to put that in the cars if we need to get a hold of one of these motors we need to do this and at that particular time we were selling just boatloads of b-series stuff you know and some h-series stuff and and we were looking at the electronics on it you know and with the immobilizer and stuff like that and we're thinking oh this may be too hard and i was desperately searching for somebody that was going to do a computer that was usable for that particular swap and lo and behold aem comes along mm -hmm. and they decide they're going to develop a, a, a computer for that and as soon as they did i started to work on mount kits yeah it was like the second they did and and that was the thing that kept my brother from wanting to go out and buy one of those motors in order to do that. But as soon as we heard that AM was going to come out with a, a computer, uh, we decided to do it. I don't remember what, exactly what year it was. It might have been 2000, 
three or four, mm-hmm. you know, probably, probably three. Um, at the time, we had, I think we had bought a Theft Recovery 2001 Civic because we just decided to start with that one because the electronics were somewhat similar on those cars, uh, having wa- looked at the diagrams. So we found a Theft Recovery, one of those things, and I made brackets in order to mount it in the car, and the design wasn't, you know, totally good, but it was adequate, you know, so... We did that, and about the same time, um, Charles Madrid started working on that swap into a, oh, we had already done a K-series swap. Let me back up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, Siri, not you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so uh, um, we had already done a, uh, a swap into a, um, a O3 Civic. We bought an O3 Civic. Uh, I'm sorry, an O2 Civic Si. And we took an RSX engine and we put it in that car. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know if there was some articles in Sport Compact Car was on the cover and stuff like that. So we did that thing. And then we took a, a, um, a CRV bottom end and bolted it to that you know particular block because we had heard that somebody thought it was going to bolt together. So we like ran out and bought a CRV block and, and bolted it together. So we did that as well. And uh, so we're like, oh, this is awesome. We need to put this engine in some other car. And then we decided to do boost and boost required something different with the computer and that's when we heard am was going to do a, a computer so gotcha, right gotcha, when we found gotcha. that out we're like okay now's the time yeah exactly we're going to do a swap and by that time charles madrid was working on a ek swap with the thing so we did the swap real quickly in the in the em2 or the 01 up five civic and madrid was getting his running in the other one because you could take actually the factory type R ECU and you could ground this one wire and mm-hmm. it would bypass the immobilizer. So that was kind of a, 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 a kind of a bit of a revelation. In fact, we actually got that same information from King Motorsports. Uh, we used that to run our uh, EP3. Mm-hmm. So Madrid was doing this with the EK and he had made these little bit spindly mounts that <laughs> he had done it. And I remember the first guy that drove it broke it. <laughs> broke so, the mounts? Broke the oh, mounts. shit. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they were beautiful, but they yeah. were just kind of lightweight. So, uh, um, and he was using, you know, things to use the stock mount. So it wasn't as robust as it could gotcha, have been, gotcha. but he had done the swap. He had legitimately done the swap. So, uh, so we did it with the O1 Civic because the electronics were so similar. And then I immediately started working on the, uh, EK Civic. And that was actually a mistake. I should have started an EG because mm-hmm. the subframe on the EK pushes you into so far forward. It just made it ridiculously hang down and, and, and wasn't the best choice. So. We did that, and that was pretty successful because we figured the EK guys had more money than the EG guys. <laughs> so we figured they would put out the forty five hundred bucks for the engine and transmission where nobody else would. Yeah, because it was like seven grand for a swap back then. You Whoa, know? Yeah, so it, was, it wasn't cheap. So <laughs> anyway, we did uh, um, we did a uh, um, that swap, and then I did the EG. And once I did the EG, I don't forget where I read it. It was some article about some guy putting Integra suspension on an EK. And uh, he had took this Integra subframe and put in. Oh, because he did a B-swap in EK, and he decided to use the Integra subframe. And I'm like going, hmm, shit, that's perfect for, an, mm-hmm. for a K-swap. So next thing we did is we took our EK apart and threw an EG subframe on it. I redesigned the mounts, moved the engine back, moved the engine up. I'm like, EK, K2, these are the greatest mounts. Ever, <laughs> you know? so, yeah. And then I said, oh, let's make them dual height so they can... Uh, put the engine up up against the hood on the k20 and if you have a k24 you put it up against the hood it just drops it down a little bit this will be perfect so, yeah 
So we did that, and that was probably 2004, I'm guessing, you know, so that was pretty cool. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors, and we'll be back in one minute. <gasps> now, son, you, you listening right now, I need to tell you something. Your life is in shambles. One of the reasons is, is the way you present yourself. Son, that t-shirt you got on right now with the stains and the bacon neck, that is not going to bring the honeys home. You look terrible. I'm not talking about your disfigurement. That's something only the good Lord could help you with. But what I can help you with is going to downsorry.com. Go to that web page on the World Wide Web and just search DTWD. Yes, yeah, search that and you could get some of the official Downtown with Downstar merch. Maybe move out the basement so me and your mama could do the dick ball dance like we used to do 27 years ago when you wasn't around. Now I'm going to go upstairs and give me a pop pie. You get back to your little podcast. So about 2004, the uh, K-Series starts to get a little popularity. Right. Was there any other mount companies working on it at the same time? Yeah. Um, I think that may have been when hybrid racing and I don't remember if Innovative popped up then. Mm -hmm. it, that may have popped up. Because I, I think Innovative may have... I don't know the whole story on Innovative, so I don't want to speak on it too much. Yeah. But I... I I think I heard at one point that they had purchased some of the old equipment from Place Racing. Okay. And they were starting off with the steel mounts because Place Racing did steel mounts. So uh, it may have started off like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, but but I'm not positive how that how that works out. And some other people have told me some other stories, but you know that's beside the point. So Innovative was doing it, and then Hybrid Racing also wanted to start doing it. And they eventually kind of abandoned making abandoned making their own mounts and started selling reselling innovative mounts so yeah so at this early time oh um, i'm sorry and then there was avid okay yeah remember yeah, avid yeah. and then there's enjo they were all making b-series stuff they were both two canadian companies um i forget the guys that owned it but uh, uh they were doing they were making mounts up in canada and some of their stuff looked like a copy and they some of the stuff they did a, a decent job of coming up with a different solution so it didn't look quite look like our stuff so but uh, you know they were they were starting to gain a little traction as well yeah at that time um i know a lot of businesses especially new businesses when they have a, a unique part that comes out and then it gets copied that kind of discourages them from moving on mm -hmm. did you guys ever feel anything like that no and and that's what's funny my brother keith was a lot more proactive in that kind of stuff he would uh i I take it personal sometimes, yeah. like when it's like an exact copy. I'm like, ah, oh, you assholes, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but he's more. He was more, you know. What are we going to do about this? Well, let's, you know, tell our dealers that you know if they want to carry our stuff, they can't carry their stuff, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, he was a little more proactive. Like for a while, we wouldn't sell uh, B series shift linkage for the EF unless you had a, a Hasport kit. Mm -hmm. You couldn't buy our linkage. You know what I mean? So, uh, and I'm like thinking to myself. God, you're probably passing up, you know, 400 sales a year by not selling to the other thing. Let's just, you know, make the money off that too. So, so eventually, you know, came around the way I was, I was seeing it. And we've got a similar situation now. We've got people that are buying uh, the cheap Chinese knockoffs and mm -hmm. uh, they're buying Hasport urethane. So uh, 
right now we've been because uh, mm. there's a couple of companies like in Malaysia and stuff like that they're just buying huge quantities of of our urethane and I know they're just slapping it in you know shitty Chinese copies so uh, that's a little bit irritating and we're thinking about trying to decide what we're going to do about it we might limit the number of of pieces of urethane they get you know like things that say basically this is all you need for warranty so you yeah know, you can't buy any more than this you know and if you want to you know put our shit in chinese mounts you're gonna have to you know make it yourself you know you're not we're not going to sell you enough to do that so yeah anyway so you being an enthusiast and mm -hmm. uh actually helping the community grow um does that stuff still bother you to this day and especially maybe if you go oh, to a yeah. car I mean, show and you right. see somebody with <laughs> copied mounts, like how how does that make you feel? I don't typically. It depends on the situation. You know, it's it's uh, sometimes I know the person doesn't have money. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? You can look at the car and go, well, that person has no money. And then other times, and they could be fibbing to me, but they may say something like, yeah, I bought the car like this, you mm -hmm. know, and I'll be like, yeah, those aren't Hasport mounts, you know. So, and the other day, and like now I see stuff on Instagram sometime. I'll see a, hey, thank you, Hasport, and I'll click on it and I'll like, whoa, shit, those aren't Hasports. <laughs> yeah. You know, do I tell them? Yeah. You know, so, or I just let them thank me. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what pisses me off is like certain companies, like there's a couple of companies in California that import the Chinese mounts that yeah. actually look just exactly like our stuff and you flip them over on the underside it's even got our trademark name on the bottom of them you know so it's like we really should probably be suing these companies mm -hmm. you know so uh you know and that you know that may come about so um uh it's it you know it depends on who the company is like the company that's importing they piss me off the people that are buying them they don't piss me off as much you know yeah uh it does piss me off when i find some guy that's you know selling them on ebay i got these used hasport mounts you know and i'm like going you sold 40 sets of those. <laughs> you basically put a couple dents in some copies and those yeah. aren't right. But, you know, we encourage people to email us with pictures when they think they've got really good deal on Hasport Mouse. A lot of, this is what's crazy. I mean, you can buy them, yeah, you can buy them pretty cheap if you get them from, you know, certain parts of China. And uh, I swear to God, people are uh, just denting them up and claiming them as used Hasports in order to, in order to sell them off, you know. That's why they're such a good deal because they're used. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? They just put a few scuffs on them, you know, and and try to sell them out. Um, so, yeah. But there's ways to tell. I mean, one of the big ways is you pull the urethane out, and you'll see uh, a name on the inside of the urethane. It's, it's got our part number, but it's got the name of the company that does the urethane. It's not Hasport. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it kind of cracks me up when I see that, you know. And uh, we had a mount kit come in the other day for warranty. This guy sends sends us a, a right hand mount for a 2006 Civic. We get it in. I'm looking at it. I'm going, I have never seen a bracket break there. So I grab a whole bracket and I go, this is not a Hasport bracket. You know, I'm looking at this. This angle's wrong. Hmm. These bolts aren't welded properly. So I grab the mount. And I'm like, oh, look at this. This is not Hasport. This is too thin. This is, look at the font. You know, this is wrong, blah, blah, blah. So I'm looking at all these things. And I'm like, yeah, sorry. Those weren't Hasport mounts. We'll be happy to sell you, you know, a right-hand mount and bracket, you know, and this is what it costs, you know, so... Sorry for the bad news, you know, take it back. But, you know, you look at it, you know why it broke. Basically, the mount has a stabilizer plate, and the plate bolts to a certain place. Well, they had bent that angle wrong, so there was no way in hell you're going to bolt the stabilizer plate to it. So what happens? It breaks off at the bottom. It breaks the bracket off at the bottom. So yeah. it was, you know, completely the, the 
fault of the person who manufactured it. It was just not correct, and it was not going to work. You know? Now, why do you think that the, the knockoff parts and the cheap Chinese parts are so uh, widely accepted in our community? I think it has to do with, you know, just the automotive industry generally. I mean, you think about uh, if you need a new fender for your car, you go to sort of fit or you go to, uh, uh, what's the other one? One of those companies that makes these fenders and you, and you buy the fender, but it's not a dot approved fender. You know what I mean? It's not the right gauge sheet metal. It yeah. doesn't fit quite right. And you say to yourself, well, this is just a beater car. I don't really care, mm-hmm. you know, but it's just that fact that those companies exist, you know, the ones in China are looking for more and more products to make, you know what I mean, to sell to the U.S. So they're they're looking at um, what things are popular. You know, they come to SEMA. Mm-hmm. They see what's going on, you know, and they get their ideas, you know, from SEMA. Yeah. This company is obviously a big company here. They are at SEMA, you know what I mean? And, and they probably monitor magazines and newspapers and stuff like that to try to see what the trends are because these people are you know they're there to make money i mean they want to manufacture parts so you know it used to be a big deal where all the time you would go on on aliexpress or what used to be called alibaba mm-hmm. and you would find you know stuff that was labeled skunk and it was not skunk yeah you know what i mean same thing with k-tuned you would mm-hmm. see stuff that was labeled k-tuned and it was not k-tuned um and you know other companies like that am all the time you'd see AM fuel pressure regulators and fuel pumps, and they were not up to snuff. And these are dangerous parts you did not want to put on your car. But there they were with the branding mm-hmm. ready to sell. Uh, same thing with Gretti, same thing with, you know, every Japanese, you know, tuner part. You, yeah. know, you can buy them from China. So people are, they're looking at these things and they're, and they're copying them. You know, it's easy. It's so easy to scan those things and turn it into a file, you know, that you can then turn into a machine program and, and make these parts. And they're very, very good about, you know, American companies send them apart and they say, how much for a hundred of these? And they mm-hmm. go, okay, let me look at it. Okay. And they draw it up and they didn't say, okay, if you buy a hundred of these, we can sell them to you for, you know, $14 and 43 cents a piece, you yeah. know, and then those people turn around and sell them for, you know, hundred dollars a piece. <coughs> but they have to pass, they have to be specced out the way you say, we need this particular rubber for this diaphragm, we need this particular grade screw for this thing, we need this particular grade bolt for this. So it gets specced out like that. If they're copying something like Asport mount or an AM fuel pump and it's not for AM specifically, they're gonna use the cheapest um, component yeah. they can. They're gonna use you know, parts that aren't you know, specced out, they're gonna use parts that are inexpensive because now they can maximize their profit. So, you know. yeah. So that's what they're doing. And a lot of those companies are, I wouldn't call them related, but they're probably related or they're probably associated. So, um, you know, one part goes to one factory and the drawings make it out to another factory and, and, and they'll, you know, make them on the side, you know, kind of thing. So this company makes a hundred of them for so-and-so and then this company makes a hundred of them for sale on, you know, Alibaba. Yeah. So, yeah. With it being so easy to uh, copy parts, mm-hmm. Um, has that discouraged you guys from releasing any any sort of mounts or any parts that you would uh, think that would be good? No. If we think it's good, we're going to release it. Gotcha. Um, if we think we can, we'll do something to protect it with mm-hmm. a patent or with a um, utility patent or design patent. But if it's a good product, it's a good product. You know, I'm not yeah. going to do that. I mean, I know 
we've worked hard enough on our rec reputation that we are going to get a certain number of sales, even though those other products are out there. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I feel pretty confident that a lot of people are looking at Hasport parts and going, I want, you know, the real thing, you know, even though other people are like going, Oh, eBay turbo kit, you know, yeah. eBay this, eBay that, you know, and, and trying to do things as inexpensively as possible. And, you know, but it's always like that, you know, yeah. I just wish that we had done a better job of patenting things early on so that I didn't have to look at my product, you know, my idea on somebody else's car that I didn't make. You yeah. Know, that, that's a little irritating. Yeah. So to, to get away from the negative talk of business. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. You're making me angry. <laughs> How does it make you feel when you go to an event like IBOC here in Ohio or even in SoCal and seeing 90% of the cars with your mounts? I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you work really hard and you want to make a difference. And whatever you do, you want to make a difference. When I taught tennis, I wanted kids to not only be good tennis players, I wanted them to be good adults, I wanted them to be good humans, you know, that's that was the deal. We make parts, you know, I want people to have successful swaps, not just our mounts, you know what I mean? I want them to, you know, really enjoy what they're doing. I want them to be having fun so that their friends want to have fun with them. You know what I mean? Their their friends go, someone's my friend did this case swap, it's so awesome. I want to do a case swap too. And I'm gonna do your stuff because yeah. you were so helpful. And that's that's what makes you feel good. So today it was, you know, it was a love fest. I mean, I had so many people come up to me and thank me, and I, that just makes you feel so good. And that's that's why you do it. I mean, obviously we do it. My wife likes it because, you know, I make some money. And <laughs> yeah. We, we have a nice house, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. But I do it because I just think it's cool shit, and I want everybody to go, that's really cool. Yeah. And do it too, you know. So I just, I just think it's awesome. How many times have you guys had a vendor booth? We used to do it all the time at SEMA and uh, several other things. Uh, we've done probably IBOC most of the time on the West Coast, like almost all of them. Uh, sometimes we're busy. Uh, uh, we need to do more. We need to do more other mm -hmm. ones as well. I tell you, this next year, that's one of the things I want to do is I want to increase doing more vendor booths and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's funny to me. I think that the the magazine's demise has kind of personalized the business. People are more used to getting a hold of you through, you're a master at this. I mean, you know what I mean? Trying. You understand what I'm saying? You know that it's about the personal connection. Yeah. You know, you, you go out there and you, you put yourself out there and you, you talk to people and, and you make friends and you, and you help people because you know that you know that that's the right way to do it in today's day and age you know it used to be you could you would reach everybody through a magazine article now the way things work out with social media you reach everybody personally mm -hmm. you know what i mean it it's um it's a it's a different different way of doing business but you know we need to be at all the h days we need to be at all the um ibox we mm -hmm. need to be at more of the uh, different festivals that are going yeah, on yeah, that have yeah. to do with Hondas and stuff like that. So now, um, you say only Hondas is that's because all I do right now. Yeah. Is there any idea in the future oh, yeah. to spread? Oh yeah. So the, the plan next year is to actually, this is kind of Honda 
is to actually do case swap mounts for a bunch of different cars. Ooh, nice. So people always say case swap, the world always say yeah. case swap all the things because I like the little <laughs> graphic that goes with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, visual jokes. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, podcast listeners. So, uh, yeah. So I'm like, I'm like thinking to myself, that would be really cool. I mean, could you imagine a, a Volkswagen GTI with a, uh, k24 in it the car, the car I would be love fast to. As hell. <laughs> yeah you remember that k-swapped uh pickup truck the yeah yeah, that, pickup truck. That yeah. Thing was amazing yeah, yeah. nick weir yeah exactly yeah, right hand drive so awesome yeah yeah it would be so easy to make that kit fit so many front wheel drive cars scion tcs if they had a real engine they'd be fast. <laughs> yeah Think about it celica that thing would be fast you know and they make a cool body kit for the old celicas remember that gt looking uh one the G- jdm gt looking one yeah. that thing was it was a good looking car you know so yeah there's you know a lot of other cars that could benefit from that engine we did that april fool's joke this year where we posted up that we were i just took a bunch of random mounts and threw them on the table my wife took a picture and she posted up uh this year we were doing a swap kit for the chevy cobalt yeah and or for the cavalier for the chevy cavalier the cavalier eighty six thousand interactions on facebook wow dude i think there's a there's a demand out there yeah that i might have been ignoring you know so yeah not even for that like if you just think of like a miata yeah you know well the k miata guys already do that and that's something we've always done if there's somebody else that's out there doing a pretty good job we typically don't compete with them you know what i mean it's one Mm -hmm. of those things where K Miata's got the K swap for the Miata's going on. I'm perfectly happy to let them have that market. I mean, they seem to be keeping up and doing a good job. They're not getting, you know, slammed for bad business, you know, yeah, dealings yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. So I don't really see a reason to do that. It, it's back to the place racing thing. Mm-hmm. They just weren't filling the orders. Do you yeah. know what I mean? If I thought K Miata was the same way, I might get into the business, but it seems like they're doing fine. But that doesn't mean we can't do it for. BMWs can't do it for 240 SX, you know, can't do it for, you know, a bunch of different cars. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it would be, you know, S13, S14, yeah. you know, FRS and BRZs and all that sort of stuff. And I know some other people are doing it, but I just don't, I've got some ideas. I think I know how I want to do it. So, uh, we want to, we want to do that. I think it would be cool to have a, a rear wheel drive, uh, Nissan hard body with a K20. Yeah. That'd be just cool shit, you know? And, and the cool thing is, K Miata has this new intake manifold that works really well. well excuse me, really well with rear wheel drive. That's a lot of R's. <laughs> uh, yeah, rear wheel drive cars, <laughs> and I think it. And I think it's. I think it would work phenomenal for any number of swaps. So I'm happy to point people in his direction, so we can sell a bunch of those manifolds. Yeah. So I think that's perfectly, perfectly legit. So is this something that's in the works or it's just an idea that you want to get done? Yeah. See, yeah. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's enough. You yeah. said enough there. Yeah. I'm excited. Hopefully you do an S14 because I, yeah. I've been wanting to get one. We just got one. So, really? Yeah. Sick, so, man. Somebody gave us one. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I've you been... You know what? I'm sorry. I was go, just ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. One of the things I wanted to do is, you know, the 90s legend with the engine in the front to rear on it? I was thinking to myself, that'd be kind of a cool drift car. Yeah. You know what I mean? Put some uh, good suspension in the back and do real <laughs> drive. Yeah. And a legend, that'd be kind of cool. Have like, you yeah, ever went to a, a drift event oh, yeah. before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever uh, d- gone to uh, Grid Life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I went to the Grid Life. We took our Prelude up to the one in Colorado recently. Oh, so, really? Yeah. 
So that was kind of cool. How uh, was that event? Uh, it was uh, one of the beginning events. I think it second time out there, so it wasn't super huge, but it was it was nice. I mean, we had a really good response, and there was a lot of people there. The drifting was crazy. Yeah, uh, they had some you know four or five car tandems, you know, and stuff like that. I guess it's not technically a tandem; it's four, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it was it was pretty cool. So uh, uh, there was a. Uh, um, some nice stuff the the grid life uh touring cup mm-hmm. uh that race is going to be big i think it's going to be huge i think they're going to have 40 plus cars next year and and it's going to get a lot of uh, attention so i think they're doing a really good job with that so you went out there to do time attack mm-hmm. with carters no car? we took uh the time attack prelude that one that has the gotcha, Andy Hope gotcha, yeah, gotcha. graphics on it and we let tom o'gorman drive it and i have a freaking boost leak that i cannot find to save my life mm-hmm. i was so bummed but, yeah uh, yeah it ran like flawless the week before you know at uh, west michigan or two weeks before at the west michigan honda meet and then it yeah starts screwing up there so i gotta pull it apart i think we're gonna bring it to super lap battle so that it should be fun yeah but uh speaking of carter he seems mm-hmm. pretty deep into uh he's the enjoying community, it. man he's enjoying it yeah he's funny though yeah but he's enjoying it he's yeah. uh He's a machinist at our shop, so uh-huh. he work, you know, he, he runs the mills, and uh, he's kind of learned how to do stuff. And he's helping out with VTech Academy on the wrenching and stuff like that. His uh, his girlfriend turned out to be a pretty talented driver. Oh wow! First time out on track, she was really fast. I was super impressed. It was so funny. She was like, she goes to the track, and they didn't give her a, this woman's day only thing, and they give everybody an instructor, except for whatever reason they didn't give her one. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, that's just. Yeah, you know, and she's out there falling around people, and she looks like she's having a good time. And so, she goes, "We walk up with me, so I can get an instructor." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll walk up with you." So we go up there to things. And she didn't get an instructor; she's instructor. And she goes, "Can I have whoever I want?" And they're like, "Oh, yeah, I guess so if they're free." And she goes, "Okay, I want you, Dad." So she turns around, and looks at me. I want you. Uh-huh. I'm like, ah, okay, <laughs> cool. I'm not an instructor, but yeah, yeah, we'll go out there. She was on the line. We. She she's fast, and we got. And I'm trying to explain the line to her, and then we got behind this girl in this BMW, and she drove a flawless line. So I'm like, Kiana, you know, watch her. No, no, you need to be over more left. Okay, very good. Okay, there's the air pack. See how she's hitting the. Okay, that's it. And so I'm like talking to her, and okay, swing it all the way out wide here, and we're talking. I'm talking, and the girl's doing a really good line, and all of a sudden, like, I notice that she's like, the girl's slowing her down. You mm-hmm. know, the girl in front of her. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you can pass her. <laughs> so, and then she's still on the line the whole time, and she was just fast as hell. And that's Carter's really girlfriend. Yeah, his wife now. His wife. Yeah, they just got married recently. So, wow, congratulations. Yes, yeah. that's uh-huh. awesome. Man. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. So it, she's she's doing really good, and Carter's actually turned out to be pretty, pretty quick too. He just inherited a, a old Prelude from my brother. He didn't want to race anymore, uh, so he's been running that, and turned out to be really fast. He was out at the last uh, NASA event and just ripping it up out there so when so did he good. start noticing um or when did you start noticing that he he had a passion for cars oh gosh i want to say two maybe <laughs> 19 months yeah he has the hugest collection of hot wheels you know and uh all he wanted to do with me when i was home is he wanted to we got on the table and he was a pretty tall kid for his age so he would just get on the thing and like we would zip hot wheels back and then he goes make it crash make it crash (laughs) you know and then as soon as he was old enough to we would never go to the go-kart place and find the two-seater go-karts and he'd always ride with me in the go-karts and then uh we would do uh uh, then as soon as he's old enough to ride you know do it himself he would do it and when he was i think maybe three i just let him sit in my lap 
And like I said, my wife had a minivan at the time, and he used to he would steer the car around the corners, and I would work the back gas and the brake, and he would learn to hand over hand. <laughs> Look like a bus driver because you know, yeah, he's yeah, a little yeah. kid, this giant steering wheel. So it was pretty fun. That's so. very cool, man. Yeah. Um, you so met- I'm sorry, is your kindergarten year? We brought race cars to show and tell for him. Yeah. He was the coolest kid in school. No way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, he wanted us to bring him. He's like, hey, can I bring the race, your race car? And I'm like, yeah. I will bring granddads too. Oh, yeah, that's cool. So That's awesome, yeah. man. That's like, that's the dream of a father. Oh, yeah. You know, especially yeah. a car enthusiast dad. Yeah, two happiest day of my life. The day he wanted to bring the race cars and the day uh, his teacher asked him to bring him music, he brought in Led Zeppelin. Ooh. <laughs> Very proud. Very proud. You did a good job, yeah, thank man. You. Thank you. But you mentioned uh, when you were talking about his love for cars, you mm-hmm. mentioned a key word. It. I want to kind of dive into this subject, but I know this is kind of a, a, a touchy one. Your uh, not for me. Your crash with the insight. Yeah, yeah, touchy because that, that was a really good car, and I'm sorry it's gone. That was an awesome car. Yeah, yeah. Um, that the one thing that bothers me most about that is to not having the car anymore. <laughs> well, last time I went to the facility, it was there. Oh, it's, so yeah, you but it, I can't run it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I can push it. But you uh, still have oh, yeah, the sure. car, though. Oh, right? yeah. It's got a lot of good parts on it still. So yeah. I just haven't taken them off yet. So, so let's dive into that yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, uh, everybody knows a little over five years ago, I uh, was at Bonneville. Or Bonneville. I was at El Mirage. Uh, I had gone on a Saturday. I had done 200 miles an hour. And we, uh, I was teamed up with Doug McMillan at Honda. We had built this, uh, I had my land speed insight and he gave me an engine. So we went out and ran the season in a particular class and we were, we had won the season championship that, that morning. And, uh, but the water spray on the intercooler didn't quite work right. So we knew the car was capable of a little bit more horsepower. I said, God, we got to go out again. You know, let's go do this again. So on Sunday morning or Sunday, a little late morning, we went out one more time. The track was really rough from being torn up from the high horsepower cars, typically because I was one of the higher guys in the points to, um, race. I usually was one of the first people out on the track, so I usually had a good track. This particular time, it was pretty teed up. So I got out there, and it pitched the car a little bit sideways, and, and I proceeded at 178 miles an hour. I proceeded to roll the car 15 and a half times. Um, I have no memory of it beyond third gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son was actually in the chase vehicle. So uh, he was coming up behind uh, um, me in the chase vehicle, uh, and all they could see was dust, and they got a call over the radio that the car had crashed and to stop. So they stopped, and there was an emergency crew coming out, you know, to the car. And I, if you've seen the video, you, yeah. the engine breaks off the front of the car, the the windshield flies out, all the door glass goes off it, all the you know the door skins get ripped off, the the ro- the rear hatch rips off half the roof, you know, and the, the the hood gets ripped off. So the car is pretty pretty much demolished. But they have a really good. Uh, safety rule set in the southern california timing association so the car was very well built you know and i survived the wreck so uh you're wearing a hans device you've got restraints on your hands so they can't go very far you know my injuries were uh, pretty interesting i had a gash on my right shin from the my legs hitting the brake pedals and you know stuff like that and i had a uh, a sprained index finger on my right hand a sprained wrist on my left hand um and I had uh, bruising on my face where the, the where the helmet doesn't put pressure on, you know what I mean? So it was kind of a circular face on my face. Both eyes were blood red. Uh, I had bled inside both ears. I had bled behind both eyes. The whites were totally bleeding. And I had bled inside my left eye. And then the, the actual serious injury was uh, my lung had torn from the sheer forces of rolling. 
So um, they weren't sure how good I was, but I'm conscious the whole time and I'm talking to them, not remembering a thing. Yeah. But uh, I'm saying, you know, hey, you want me to get out? They're like, no, no, stay there. So they cut the cage off and pulled me out on a spine board, threw him on a helicopter and flew me off. And while they're flying me off, they noticed I was, uh, my oxygen content was going down in my blood. So they uh, they were able to figure out that I had a, uh, a leaky lung. And uh, so they flew me into the hospital. And my first memory is actually the doctor jabbing me with a finger in the rib cage going, hey, you've got a torn lung. We're going to stick a tube in right here. I'm like, okay. And then... Uh, my next memory is opening up my eyes and looking at my son sitting at the foot of the bed. And I'm like, oh, did I crash? And he's like, yeah. I go, how's the car? He's like, that's total. I'm like, have you, did you tell your mom? He's like, yeah, I told mom. Go, okay. How do I look? And he's like, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I said, we'll take a picture. So he takes a picture of me and I look at it and I go, whoa, put that on Facebook. Tell everybody I'm alive. <laughs> so, uh, so he does. And uh, uh, so like later on that day, uh, Doug McMillan comes in. He's got a flash drive with a crash on it. So, uh, you know, so I was able to see the crash almost immediately, see what happened. But uh, it was funny because I was blind in my left eye because from sitting back on the bed, leaning back, uh, blood had pooled in an area of the eyeball called the fovea. It's like a, a, a an area that's uh, dense in rods and cones. So you have super high uh, vision acuity right there, but it's kind of dips down. So the blood had pooled in there. So I had to, like this black splotch in the middle of my eye. So uh, I was... Um, wondering if that was going to be a big deal and they were telling me oh we can have an operation if it doesn't work out but it'll probably absorb it'll probably be fine you know so um but i was uh on a pump you know for my chest to you know keep the you know the air leaking out from accumulating in my chest and collapsing with my lungs so i was on that for about five days and then they released me on a that happened on a sunday they released me on the following sunday and i was back to work on the next monday so uh but it was wow but it was like you know it was you know, it was it was serious. My wife stayed there the whole time with me. She was a little worried, you know, and uh, obviously my son was a little bit worried. But uh, and I always brush it off as not being that serious. But my wife's like, "Oh no, it was serious." Here. <laughs> so, uh, but it you know it doesn't really doesn't really bother me that much. Uh, it's funny though. The first time my wife came to one of my road races, uh, she brought Carter with, and uh, it was the second time I had road raced, and I was out. I got out in front of my class, and I was way out front like half lap out front and i'm zipping along and i'm this one guy's like snaking this car around corners and i'm like oh, i can do that and at one point i hook a tire on a on a gator bump and it flings me off the track and i go flying into a wall at about 70 miles an hour <laughs> you know and my wife is like <gasps> you know like and my son's like what happened and she's like nothing you know and then the ambulance <laughs> out there and they're all coming out and stuff like that and they're walking to me are you okay and i'm like Oh man, my neck hurts, you know. Yeah, I'm fine. They're like, wow, okay, you know, you're dizzy or this or that. I'm like, oh, I'm fine. So, uh, but it just totaled my, that was my 89 Civic that I built for racing for working at Houseport. That was kind of a drag. It was a nice car, too. Yeah. Wow. So man. I don't get yeah. attached cars anymore. Everybody <laughs> listening to this story right now, I'd advise you to go watch that video oh, yeah. on YouTube. You Google Houseport Insight Crash. And Bro, that that right was up. serious. I remember when that happened. I was just like, I, I cannot even believe that you walked away from that. I, I'll show it to people, and people ask me if the guy lived. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, that's me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> so. Wow. So after that, what kind of um, reception did you get from the community? Well, I, a lot of people, you know, were very happy that nothing happened, you know what I mean? So it was... Uh, you know, it was nice. It was really nice. It was, uh, you know, better than a eulogy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, cause I got to hear it all. So yeah. it, was, <laughs> yeah. it was nice. Uh, 
it was kind of funny. There was like a brief period of fame there. You know, I got flown off to New York to be on CNN and <laughs> a couple other things. So it was, it was, I was thinking to myself the whole time, man, I could probably parlay in this good stuff here. <laughs> Maybe I should do a documentary about my next insight. You know? Yeah. Kind of cool. So yeah. Anyway, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was interesting. Uh, uh, it was, you know, you, you come talk to people and, and it still happens to this day. You know, I come to people like, man, I can't believe that crash. I'd look at it now and I'm just so, so happy you survived. It's so good, you know, and, and, you know, you just, you just feel it, you know, I'm, I'm obviously my wife's really happy I survived and, you know, I'm really happy I survived and, and my son's yeah. really happy I survived, but it's very, very nice to hear other people say the same thing. It's, it, it really, really touches you. It really, really touches you. So. Yeah. It's nice. So. so when you did this uh, press run, what was that like? That was kind of crazy because it it took a it took a couple of days after I got back. I think I, like I said, back on a Monday, and by Wednesday, I started getting all these messages that people wanted to talk to me. Mm-hmm. So you know, and then I remember news channels, local news channels, sending people down to interview me and I'd be standing in front of the crash car talking about what's going on. And then I had radio programs call me and then CNN called me and said, Hey, we want to fly you out to, uh, uh, whatever their morning show was with uh-huh. Chris Cuomo. And uh, I can't remember the woman's name, but, uh, he, we'd like to fly you out there for that. And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, uh, we'll put you up in this hotel and you'll be on at nine o'clock next morning. And then we'll fly you back. And I'm like going, yeah, sounds cool. So, uh, I got on some cramped little flight and got into this just crazy tiny hotel room. See how big this room is right now? Yeah. This kitchen? That's how big the hotel room was. The 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 queen size bed, there was like a foot and a half on each side. Like stuff was built into the walls. The bathroom had like a sliding door. It was just this tiny little thing. It was not much bigger than one you'd find in a motor home, you know, and it was just crazy small little bedroom. It was Was super, this in super Japan? <laughs> Yeah, it looked like that's what it reminded me of. And it was in New York, and it was wow. like right there, just down the street from where CNN does their stuff, whatever, nine-something plaza or yeah. whatever it is, you know. And and yeah, and it was just, you know, crazy thing. And they had this beautiful bar downstairs, and it was super popular, and, you know, it was it was crazy. But, you know, I was tired as shit, and I went in there, and I went to sleep and got up the next morning, went in. They put a little makeup on me and did a few things ah, they didn't put any makeup on what they oh they mic'd me up is what they did yeah. they had me come out and sit down with everybody so it was kind of fun talking to them and stuff like that yeah it was cool do you think you'll ever uh go out and race again oh yeah for sure really oh yeah i'm building another car yeah another insight yeah another insight yeah so i went out and bought one about a year later it was funny because i saw this insight and i'm like that'd be perfect and i'm like so i call this person and they're like oh no i already have a an offer on it i'm like oh so I sent him a, I sent her an email with a link to the crash. <laughs> there you go. And I bought the car. <laughs> was that a, a tip from your uh, from your brother? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he's ever that, done that. that. That's, that's a good <laughs> hustle yeah, right there. It was a good like, hustle. hey, I need this car. Exactly. <laughs> and here's why. So. so what made you even fall in love with the Insight chassis? Oh, and I heard about it. Yeah, because I, so when I was a kid, I used to build a lot of models, mm-hmm. car models and stuff like that. And I built this just crazy uh, land speed race car, super smooth looking awesome thing. And had kind of a birdcage um, uh, body to it, you know, with sheet metal on it. And it was this really detailed model. And I was in love with Bonneville back then. You know, you would see it on, I think it was on Wide World of Sports or something like that. You would see every year they would do their Bonneville thing, you know. And, and of course, Craig Breedlove was 
running the big jet powered, you know, land speed racers. And I was like, land speed racing. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Cause it's, to me, it was like this total engineering thing where you, not only did you drive the car, but you had to design it and build it. And, you know, you had to be, you know, this, this, this great guy. And I always wanted to be this builder, you know, that's what I wanted to do when I was younger. So I was always building stuff. So I'm thinking that's going to be, that's me. I'm going to do this. So at one point I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'd like to land speed race. And I'm thinking about all the cars and, you know, and then, you know, not doing, you know, not doing anything about it really. And then all of a sudden I see this press release from Honda and I see the inside. I'm going, shit, that's my car. I can take, you know, whatever engine, put it in this car and it will be the fastest car at Bonneville, period. It will be the best car at Bonneville. Hmm. This is awesome. So, you know, I fell in love with a car and then all of a sudden the K-Series motor comes out. I'm like, Honda's best chassis with Honda's best motor. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And a couple of years later, uh, we were on some auction sites, you know, for uh, salvage yards and stuff like that. We found a flood, flooded out insight in uh, Minneapolis, put a bid in for it, bought it for 900 bucks, took us 900 bucks to get it shipped to Phoenix. And then I started working on it. So that was probably 2004, maybe. And, uh, started, you know, working on it and, uh, you know, slowly building it up and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours in that thing. Uh, but one of the first things I did was get a roll cage. And I remember taking, uh, back then we used to sell a lot of auto power, auto power roll cages. Mm -hmm. My dad had this business where he was renting out, uh, RX sevens that were built for racing. And I had an auto power roll cage in my, in my cars and Keith sold a lot of them. I think we were the largest auto power dealer in the U S at the time. Um, and, uh, we sold a lot of them for Hondas and a lot of them for Mazdas. Anyway, so I knew they land speed race. So I said, Hey, I want to do a land speed racing car. And Keith's like, yeah, they do those special projects, you know, at the end of every year when they have downtime, I'm like, awesome. So I'm talking to Paul White, one of the two kids of the, of the owner, by the way, the, uh, well, anyway, I'm talking to one of the two kids and. I'm like, hey, I want to do land speed racing. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I got this Honda Insight, but I want to go 200 miles an hour. It's got to be able to survive a roll at 200 miles an hour. And the guy's like, yeah, no problem. So I get, I, I give him the car, charges me like 1700 bucks. You get this car back, this crazy cage in it. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. So then I start building the car, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, get it all done. We go out to Bonneville one year. I had Toda give me a bunch of parts for a motor. And, uh, they were great. And then, uh, I had another guy assemble the motor. Um, when I got the motor back, it was kind of dirty inside, you know? So I took it all apart and rinsed it all out and then put it back together. The guy was kind of an engine builder, but he's going out of business. So I, I think he was over promising, you know, and mm -hmm. under delivering. So, um, so I get this thing and put it all together and we go to Bonneville. We tune it up for, I forget how many horsepower, 214 or 224 or something like that. So we get out there and we go to Bonneville and we're just, we're just blasting down the thing. And I'm in my licensing run where you go kind of not so fast at first. You have to do between 100 and 125. I'm driving mom, blasting along about 115 miles an hour. And all of a sudden it feels like I'm hitting a headwind. Oh, that's kind of weird. So I push on the throttle a little bit harder and the car slows down. I'm like, fuck, engine. So I push my foot on the clutch and then this white smoke cloud comes out the back of the car. I'm like, oh shit, something just happened. And the engine dies. So I get back. And what happened was the, the pistons were forged. And when the guy bored the cylinder walls, he didn't put enough clearance in there. He, he, uh, he had asked what they needed and they said, oh, you need factory clearance. Well, what they needed was factory clearance for like an S2000, not factory clearance for like a K20. So they were a little bit tight. So it seized in the bore. 
the rod pulled the wrist pin out of the piston and proceeded to smash the piston into these little bitty balls. So mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of wrecked. So, uh, and that was too bad. That was a really good engine. So two years later, I put a stock 06 Civic motor in and went back to Bonneville because I had time the next time. We went out and we were going after this record that was um, like 157 miles an hour and it had been set like 17 years ago. So I've got a stock motor, I've got a stock body car, and we beat the record by 0.034 miles an hour. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. So I'm like, okay, now I'm gonna build a real motor. So yeah. I started building a, a motor with some skunk parts and it made pretty good horsepower. We we're getting ready to go back when Doug is like going, hey, can I borrow your car for an event? out of Bonneville. I'm like, oh yeah, sure. He goes, let's put a supercharged 1.5 liter in. I want to go take this class. I'm like, okay. But I wasn't qualified to go that fast. So we let Craig Corbin, a friend of ours, uh, do it. And he wanted to be my crew chief on the, during the next season. Mm -hmm. reason. But anyway, he went out there and went 180 some odd miles an hour and, you know, won the record and, and everything. And, but unfortunately the guy that Doug was trying to spoil, who is in a points battle with for land speed racing, ran in a different class so it was all for naught we got the record but it was like yeah yeah didn't make much difference but so was that the same insight that you got in the accident oh, yeah. with yeah yeah wow so the you remember i said i need a roll cage that survived 200 miles yeah i tested it it worked <laughs> oh, pretty good so. did you ever talk to the guy who built oh, it yeah. after was, yeah when i went back for the one for i, I brought him back the new insight and i said i i said this one needs to uh i need to be able to roll this one at 250 but I promise not to test it. <laughs> Let's like, hope not. Yeah, Brian. exactly. Let's hope not, <laughs> yeah. man. So yeah. what was it about that chassis that just clicked in your head? Like, oh, this is the car. The arrow. Okay. You know, I can remember reading early on about the the drag coefficient. You know, it was fairly small. You could actually put a K-series in it because it was kind of tall, in the, you know, under the hood. So it, to me, it was just the ideal engine. I mean, ideal car. Mm -hmm. It had super, it was super slick. It wasn't going to require any real, you know, anything other than taking the mirrors off and the windshield wipers off in order to make it even faster so it just seemed like the ideal car and mm -hmm. it seemed like not only it, it it seemed like it would also be a feather in the cap of honda if honda went out there and broke the record with a stock motor and a stock body you know what i mean and beat this 17 year old record that just seemed to me like it was a win for everybody so because i really like you know promoting honda because that's what we do you know and, yeah. and i just thought it was it was a cool idea so. did honda ever reach out to you uh, they knew about it uh -huh. and we've talked about it many times and I think they're, yeah, but you know, and they did some land speed racing later on after that. I don't know if you remember the, they took a formula car out there, uh, like an F1 car and mm -hmm. they took the wings off of it and went out and tried to do 250 miles an hour. I think the fastest they did was in the 240 range. Um, and then a few years ago, they actually took another car out. They made a one liter car. It's just super like arrow shaped uh thin thing and and they went out and set some records with that as well so pretty cool so you say as a kid that you were into land speed oh i thought racing. land speed was cool yeah what was it so attractive about land speed racing versus all other types of racing we, we rode i wasn't really doing any racing at the time i just liked the idea of man and machine and how fast can you go you know i thought both from an engineering standpoint and from a driver standpoint i thought that those people were heroic going that fast you know mm -hmm. and just trying to go as fast as you could i didn't really totally understand how the system worked as a kid but just the whole it just appealed to me you know to go fast so it was always on my bucket list to go to bonneville and have a record you know what i mean so uh um 
And since then, my record has been beat by somebody else. I'm going to go back and take it and bury it this time so nobody can take it. So. When do you think you're going to get back in the seat? Either this August or the following August. Oh, wow. Yeah, so maybe as early as July. So we'll see. So, yeah. Yeah. But the new just depends on when I have time. It's going to take a couple hundred hours to build a car, so I've got to find the time. You know, it's not just a matter of, of saying I want to do it. I need to find the time. So I'm going to probably team up with a company on the engine because it would be nice to have 350-ish horsepower. I yeah. think with that, I could probably do 200 miles an hour naturally aspirated, which would be pretty huge. If you had a two-liter car, 200 miles an hour in a stock body, I think that would be that would be pretty cool. I think a lot of people would be excited to be part of this project. Yeah, I hope so because uh, probably need some help. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's a heavy subject. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, racing is, you know, what you do and, you know, call it luck or call it a good rule set or call it, you know, the hand of God, you know, it was, uh, you know, nothing serious happened, you know, other than the fact that if you hit your serve over 120, I have a little difficulty returning it, you know, but mm -hmm. other than that, everything's cool, so. Did that change anything um, about the way that you looked at life? No, I just did tennis balls. <laughs> Really? Yeah, it's a little bit difficult when they're moving right at me, so i got to get off to the side. It's a little bit easier to judge the speed that way. So, but life, not not necessarily. I mean, people have life-changing experiences all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't mean to be blasé about it, but I really don't think of anything I do any different, you know. I mean, my wife is a little upset that I don't want to not race, but... Yeah, how does she feel about you wanting to go at it again? She's finally kind of accepted it. I th either that or she doesn't think it's actually going to happen. Yeah. So <laughs> she'll wait till I actually am doing it to get upset. I, yeah. I'm not sure which way. I'll let you know. Now, you mentioned that she uh, she does some work on the with the business. Yeah. Uh, how active is she with, with the business? She's doing a lot of the social media now. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I just don't have time. So, uh, you know, I have so many things to do that, you know, working Facebook, working Instagram was really getting to be a chore and it's still you know there's a lot of messages and stuff like that you know mm -hmm. how it is. you get yeah. 40 messages in a day and you can spend you know two hours in the morning another two hours in the afternoon and you know and there's only eight hours in a day so you know it's it's kind of it's kind of tough so and then a you know vtech academy on top of that and trying yeah. to get other projects done and and uh be a good husband and all this sort of stuff so she's been helping out quite a bit and it, it makes life much much easier you know yeah. she can trace down the answer a lot of times for things that you know People are asking questions like that, and she's getting better and better at it all the time. But she's actually doing a pretty good job of of going out and finding interesting news stories and keeping people engaged in the Hotspur uh, uh, Facebook page, which is really nice. And she's uh, starting to do more and more Instagram stuff. So, so with her helping out with the business, does this make um, the the work home relationship a lot easier? The balance so far. So far, it's done a really good job. I mean, uh, everybody gets cranky around small at work, you know what I mean? But uh, <laughs> uh, she enjoys working at Hasport. You know, she's worked at a couple of retail jobs. And, you know, a lot of times when you're working retail jobs, the people you interact with are having a problem or a bad day. And that's why they're, you know, they're, you know, they're yelling at you, you yeah. know. So Hasport, generally speaking, people like us. So, you know, it's, it's, she's like, ah, oh, I love working in a place where people like us. This is so nice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. Before she started working with you guys, mm -hmm. what were some kind of um, maybe things that you you thought would happen with you working so close with your your wife? I think she was more worried about it than me. I mean, I'm pretty easy to get along with, you know, so it doesn't really, I don't really 
and I try to never be short with her in situations like that because mm-hmm. I know she's kind of learning, and I try not to respond snippily when I think I might otherwise do that. Mm-hmm. So I so far. I was really optimistic about it. I thought it was going to work out really good. Gotcha. So far, it's worked out really good. Awesome. So, yeah, it, it's great. I mean, she's a super hard worker, and she's personally invested in this business because this is going to be our future, you know what I mean, So, uh, and our son's future. So yeah. uh, uh, I think it, that helps out quite a bit with her. She feels like she's got a stake in what's going on. So uh, And she understands that stuff. She was really good at customer service when she was working for Target and Walgreens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she also felt like those businesses really didn't care. Yeah, definitely. This one cares. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's really important that uh, yeah. she enjoys working there and, and, and does a good job. Yeah. The reason I ask is because uh, I'm probably going to be making that move pretty soon. You know, my wife, she's working her job. And mm-hmm. I just think that it makes the most sense if we work together, yeah. you know, well, work towards the same goal. Yeah. And uh, everybody that I talk to, they say that it might not be the best idea. Well, you, you never, know? it depends on your, you know, it depends on you. I yeah. mean, a lot, a lot of it does, you know, how, how are you going to deal with that kind of stuff? Are you going to be able to, when you get home, I mean, we take our time to kind of recap the day and try to put it all to bed and put mm-hmm. it on lists so that we're not rehashing it over the rest of the evening and stuff like that, because it's, it would suck to work eight hours and come home work together another four hours that yeah would, that would be kind of shit. yeah yeah so yeah. uh um so we try not to do that we do kind of put game face on when we get in the car in the morning and and you know when we start you know heading towards work you know uh although i'll tell you what it was a big stress reliever is i let her drive now uh-huh. because she's a nervous passenger so we <laughs> kind of wig her out a little bit so now i i sit there and and uh i try to answer as many social media questions I can on the drive into work and I try to write down what we need to do on the list, you know, and, and let her focus on, you know, uh, getting us there alive. Yeah. Now um, is she invited to taco Tuesday? She comes every night. Really? Every oh yeah. Oh, unless it's, uh, yeah. Unless she's doing something <laughs> else, which is occasionally, you know, she probably misses one every couple months. So, so what's yeah. the story between, behind that? The taco Tuesday? Yeah. Night? So, okay. So years ago, like, oh God, I don't know, four or five, six years ago, uh, uh, James Holy, who owns K Tuner, mm-hmm. okay, and uh, another friend, Jamie Lugo, we were all like, we should get together and and, and talk because we kind of had some projects that were going on together, you know. I'm like, we should go together again. And Jamie said, Hey, I used to go to this place uh, called Dos Gringos because they have uh, two dollar tacos on mm-hmm. on uh, Tuesday nights. So we're like, okay, let's go there. So. So we started going there every Tuesday night, and uh, it was funny because for like the first year we we're there like every night, you know, every single night. And then the second year, James would be traveling all the time, and he wouldn't show up, you know. And then James, but James was still there, so we'd be there. And you know, sometimes it's like 115 out there <laughs> yeah, when we're oh doing it, and God. we're out, and we're outdoors. So uh, wow. and there's, there's like a mystery system, you know, and stuff like that. And sometimes a storm rolls through, you know, and it rains on us. But it, you know, we, we're just there. Every, we're just there every weekend. <laughs> yeah. So we did that for like three years, and Jamie's kind of trailing off more and more and more. And then, uh, uh, and it's James and I. And then James bought this really nice house as far away after about three years. So he stopped coming out to the thing. So it's just me. And then this other core group of people that we've just kind of picked up along the way that would come out on a regular basis. So it's me and like this five to 10 guys would, and my wife and a couple other, you know, females would come occasionally. And we would just 
you know, hang out there and do that. So we've been doing this thing probably six years. And I've probably, every Tuesday, every Tuesday, and wow. I probably missed, probably missed like 10 of them in six years. Yeah. So it's still at the same place. Still at the same place. So what's it like when you guys go in on a Tuesday? Well, they, they was, oh, first of all, it's pretty dead here. Uh-huh. So it's, it's pretty, <laughs> so, and we've gone through 12 waitresses, uh-huh. but we tip really good. And, uh, but our, they've made so many changes to that restaurant. It was sort of like, okay, we're not going to give out free chips anymore. So I'm in there one day and I'm like, hey, I know you're not going to give out free chips, free chips anymore, but can you just do me a favor and put all the chips on my tab yeah. and don't stop bringing chips? So they did that for a week and then they started giving me free chips again. <laughs> so, you know, we go through 10 baskets of chips sometimes, you know, and then uh, we'd always, and then a bunch of us would drink like three, four, five beers, you know, yeah. and we'd buy like buckets of beer and just sit there and pound beers you know so uh so eventually they started reserving our table us tuesday night these guys always have this table and then they would train new waitresses on us as mm-hmm. well because that way i'd give two waitresses on you know on the table so it was it was kind of interesting they're they're um um they're under new management now or new ownership so uh um and we're like Sorry for listening. We're actually <laughs> thinking about possibly ending it and taking it over to my shop. Oh. There's this carniceria down the street. Uh-huh. For the amount of money, the prices kept going up. So for the amount of money I spend every Tuesday night, I could feed 10 people. Oh. So if I just went to the carniceria and spent 40, 50 bucks there, I could have enough tacos to feed like a dozen people. Yeah. And we could just eat it at my shop and then start Tuesday or start midnight oil there and, and actually work on a car as well. Yeah. So we may, we may do that when it cools <laughs> off. So we'll have to see how that goes. Very cool. Yeah. Sure. Now, how, how do you feel about, um, LeBron trying to trademark taco Tuesday? I think somebody already trademarked it. Really? Yeah. I thought, I think he's, there working. was a company that did it. There's like 12 of them that have tried and nobody's been able to pull it off yet. So LeBron is trying to do it? Oh, yeah, fuck I think that he... motherfucker. Up. <laughs> <laughs> he started to move to L.A. and figured out what tacos actually were. They Screw were. that <laughs> shit. <laughs> no, that's just sudden, wrong. All of a sudden, he's a local that wants to trademark tacos. That's wrong. <laughs> if anybody deserves it, I do. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, man. Yeah. Holy crap. That's really cool, man. It's yeah. cool to see um, just from... from you know, it's social media to see the kind of uh, camaraderie that you have with the guys over there. That's just fun shit. You know what yeah. I mean? You sit there and, and sometimes you're doing something and you're like, this is a thing. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's just kind of fun to do this stuff. You know, it's uh, the the midnight oil I'm hoping is going to turn into something like that. You know yeah. what I mean? I was actually even thinking about doing some Twitch streaming gotcha, uh, yeah. as well because I... I'm getting back to the point where I'm probably going to be wiring in the evening times again. Yeah. There's a few projects, so I'm thinking maybe Twitch might be a, you ask me questions while I'm sitting here wiring something, although I'll probably fuck shit up if I am like, yeah. trying to answer questions at the same time I'm wiring. You know what I'm All talking about. Questions and <laughs> there you go, collabo. I can just see him now. Blue, red, Matt, blue, red. That's, One, that's really blue. crazy Like for you uh, to be so engaged with the new way of marketing um social media you know and even the um vtech academy midnight oil and things like that what was it that clicked in your head that you thought that this was something that i needed to to capitalize on 
I, I think I saw the value with the hybrid web page. Mm -hmm. When we started participating on the hybrid web page back in the day and the, and the internet was, was such a good tool at doing promotional stuff, but it's weird how quickly it changes, you know what I mean? So then you watch the forums kind of die off and, uh, uh, and the and Facebook kind of come on and then you've watched Facebook has peaked, you know, and now Instagram is I think rolling up as much and then you've got You know YouTube is always kind of YouTube has always been interesting to me I remember watching YouTube early on where you have guys that were just vlogging You know what I mean? And they mm -hmm. were just basically cutting up on on film and these guys were early partners of YouTube and making pretty good money and then I watched the uh, What's the word I'm looking for then I watched the the quality of it start to really raise up and you know it, it you had to be a lot better you couldn't just be you know there with your camera doing yeah. stuff but then that kind of branched so now you have these vlogger style guys working on cars with their hand holding their their shit you know and they're you know here's what i'm doing here you know you watch uh uh boosted boys and stuff yeah, like that yeah, yeah. where they're not really per they're not really giving you that much information, what they're doing is just showing you how fun the shit, you know, is. And so it's kind of interesting to me to see how the different styles and things like that are working out. And I'm, and although we don't have a huge audience, you know, we probably only get 700 views to a, a thousand views on uh, the uh, midnight oil stuff, mm -hmm. but I still think it has value. You know yeah. what I mean? Cause I can't tell you, I mean, I see people all the time and they're like, I watch your midnight oil all the time. And I'm just like thinking to myself, who's not watching it? You yeah. know what I mean? Cause people talk to me about it all the time and it just kind of cracks me up, you know? And I look at it and we only have 50 or 60 people watching at a particular time, but then I turn it off and there was 800 views. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool, you know? So, uh, I don't know if people are watching it clandestinely or if they just watch it for three minutes and then pop off, you know, if it's not interesting, but it, but anyways, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I think that it's, that's got a lot of value. And I think that Twitch may actually have a lot of value too. The question is, how do I go about doing a multi-camera, you know, kind of shoot where we can actually have something get done while we're doing it and, and interact with the people at the same time. So, yeah. uh, so it's, it's, uh, we're still figuring it out, but I mean, but I, but I saw the value of the internet. So I'm, I'm working and looking really hard at what is, is there going to be a next big thing? Or is it just gonna be a bunch of little things? Are people's attentions getting divided up into all these little things? You know, you see a lot of the Instagram videos and stuff like that. And a lot of them are totally fucking worthless, but you yeah. know, some of them are, you know, somewhat entertaining and some of them are decent at, you know, promoting what they're trying to promote and stuff like that. And, you know, I have like mad respect for, uh, Honda Pro Jason, mm -hmm. who works freaking constantly and gets videos out all the damn time. I'm just astounded at what that guy does. You know what I mean? He is, he has worked hard to earn what he gets. You know, and I know a lot of people don't necessarily like him because he's not like a true performance guy. You know, they they because of people have their gripes. You know, with him, but the guy is amazing. He really, really is, and he cares and he works hard. And he's done a nice job with his type R and he's, he does a nice job with all the videos he does. And he's, he's on it all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's a real enthusiast and he is a absolute total evangelist for Honda. You know what I mean? So he does a really, really nice job. So I can never be that person, but you know, but I like him. I, I love the guy. And mm -hmm. every time I see him, we <laughs> sit down and talk, you know, and he's, he's, he's pretty amazing. I would like, 
I would like to have a little bit of that, or I'd like to hire somebody like that. You know what I mean? That's what I would like to do. Yeah, definitely, man. It's, um, it's one of those things where it's just consistency is the, one of the biggest things, if not the biggest thing, if not the biggest thing. Yeah. Yep. And I've noticed that even with this podcast, you know, the only reason that it's gotten to this point is because we're doing two episodes a week and they're scheduled on a time and I try my hardest not to miss it, you know? And the only reason, the only way that I do that is I have to look at it like a full-time job. This is something that has to get done. Absolutely. It's not something that, okay, I'll get it done yeah. whenever I get a oh, chance. Because yeah. that's the that's the big problem with VTech Academy. VTech Academy is is so time consuming for me, it's just ridiculous. And and I know that I'm doing a really crappy job of putting stuff out on a regular basis. And if I I'm astounded I have almost 50,000 subscribers doing this crappy job as I am. You know, luckily we have good information, so that does help quite a bit. And so this next year, I'm gonna try my hardest to hire somebody yeah. to actually get out two videos every single week. Definitely. So that would be a huge deal. Yeah, um, Ryan and I were just talking about it last night about the importance of, you know, um, not only social media, but even getting content out such as YouTube or what have mm -hmm. you, you know? and. Uh, I even thought it's worth having a full-time employee just to make sure that you get these videos done. Because, exactly. Um, I mean, in the long run, it's going to pay off. Yeah. You know, it's going to take maybe a year or so. But uh, I told Ryan if he or I focused on it and, you know, released two or three videos a week, there's there's no doubt in my mind that we would be 200K plus subscribers in one year. Exactly. Exactly. I think if I, I, think if I worked hard for four or six months at getting stuff out on a regular basis, it would pay for itself. Yeah. You know, and I just need to do it. You yeah. know, unfortunately, Hasport makes me really good money, so I need to do that first. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing, it'll come. You know, I'll, I'll, I will find that person, you know, I will find that money to hire that person. So I, I got to do that. Just got to do that. Yeah. So what is the difference, or can you explain what each of them is, the uh, VTech Academy and um, Midnight Oil. Midnight Oil is simply the live show for VTech Academy. Okay. Midnight Oil was originally Midnight Oil was a was an idea where I was going to work on a car after like ten o'clock in the evening, mm -hmm. and I was going to do maybe have an interview, maybe work on a car. That was what it's going to be, and it was going to be possibly a Twitch show, possibly a. a uh, it was going to be a Facebook show actually. Mm -hmm. It was going to be on Facebook Live. <coughs> Pardon me. Let me cough louder for you guys. <laughs> anyway, so uh, anyway, so it was uh, uh, a slight flinch. <laughs> Sorry, you're all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, um, the uh, the uh, so Midnight Oil was just like my cool name for you know a live show. You know, mm -hmm. here I am late at night working on something. You know, here let's let's uh, here I'm working. You know, you get a peek in kind yeah. of thing, and then it turned into more of a talk show. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, had a few interviews. My son and I talk of it. We try not to argue too much. Yeah, uh, but it, it's 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 interesting. So uh, uh, it's interesting for me, and mm -hmm. I really really enjoy answering people's questions, even though I answer the same damn question. Really, every week, sometimes. Not yeah. Always. For a while, it was always for a while there was a lot of the same questions. Now it seems to be uh, you know people. You can tell new people come on and they ask a question and. We're a little bit quicker about answering and stuff like that. So eventually what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to take the last, I'm only going to keep the last four in the queue mm -hmm. and I'm going to take the ones all previous to that and turn them into a, um, 
turn that into a podcast. So I actually have to get nice. better microphones yeah. so that it sounds better. Yeah. So that they can, so that we can do something with it. So when you're ready, let me know, man. I have the uh, whole list of for all this stuff. Ah, cool. You know, it's really nice, it's nice setup. Thank you. I Super appreciate legit. it. Thank so, you. Thank yeah. you. I'll have to change the stickers. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, we were just talking about that too. You can buy these things from Amazon, and then you just wrap you it and put a sticker on, exactly. man. You just yep. got to work with what you got. Yep. You know. Yep. And. Uh, yeah, it's it's super exciting to see you coming out with that new content, especially being, um, like being in the industry for so long, being cemented in the industry, and not really having to have to do that kind of stuff. Because there's a lot of companies that have the the legacy that you have, and they pretty much they're just raking in the money, and that's it. Yeah, but I've got plans to expand this thing. You know what I mean? So, uh, and I also think that. I'd actually like to make a magazine. Yeah. I'd like to do a quarterly magazine. I would like to have one quarter is going to be the, the swap Bible for the EG. Yeah. And another one is going to be the swap Bible for the EK. Maybe the next one's going to be how to build an all-wheel drive car. Maybe the next one's going to be, you know, all about road racing yeah. setup, you know, and just kind of put these things out every four months. But in order to do that, I need to have VTech Academy pulling, enough in a, pulling in enough money monthly, hopefully through the uh, um you know for the videos and stuff like that so i can hire staff to write you know write the magazines and gotcha. stuff like that this and this and vtech academy isn't actually me it's me aaron bonk and aaron gehagen oh aaron bonk as well yeah really yeah so it's actually an llc with the three of us yeah so, so at some point when it makes enough money gonna grab aaron back and and just you sit down and just start hammering all the stuff out so uh Hopefully, you know, this next year we'll be able to do something with that. Very cool, man. I see sometimes on there, um, Robert from Hush. Yeah, Robert, yeah. So how did that relationship start? Well, Robert and I have known each other for quite a number of years, probably uh, early 2000s. You know, he worked for a company down in Tucson called Collective Racing, which uh, uh, Scott Byers, the owner of that um, company, had this just beautiful 90, uh, 90 to 93 Integra, or I'm sorry, 1993 Accord that had an H22 in it. Uh, Robert was from down in Sierra Vista, which is, you know, a couple hours south of Tucson, and uh, um, had an H22 powered Accord as well. And uh, so um, he kind of liked the EFs and stuff like that. But anyway, he worked, he moved up to Tucson, worked for uh, Scott Byers for a number of years. And then he decided to start his own business, uh, and it was called Hush Performance. Mm -hmm. And it became, the the story's a long story about it, but it basically his wife wouldn't let him put an 822 unless he made the rest of the car look stock. So I think he had a, um, a license plate that said, instead of H22, it said Hush 22. So it was, you know, like on the download kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, got so, you, got you. Yeah, so anyway, he was... Uh, uh, so he decided to make the company Hush Performance, and uh, he just started, you know, every time he had an idea, he would, you know, try to bring it, you know, bring it out. So we did the wide body kits for the CRX, wide body kits for the DA, which nobody else was really doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think now he knows why. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but they're really popular, and they're great, great products. So, uh, uh, but, uh, and the CRX one still sells, actually. So the DA one, you know, it's not quite as big a crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he started off making a... Uh, um, a master cylinder relocation kit for the 88 to 91 Civics. You could run the hydraulic uh, yeah. clutches. So that's what he started doing way back in the day. And, and he's just kind of built a business out of that. So anyway, we've known each other for a long time. Um, 
he is uh, moved down to Phoenix and uh, he wanted to help out with some of our projects. So he just started helping out with it. And he's, you know, charismatic and looks good on, you know, video and, and funny guy. So I started incorporating him in the stuff. And then he started his own YouTube channel, How to Yard. Mm -hmm. And so he's doing quite a bit of stuff like that. But he's actually probably getting ready to move uh, here before too long. He's, uh, his uh, um, wife is pregnant. She, oh, uh, they nice. got married recently. They awesome. live up in, yeah, he did a good job. Awesome. Uh, so uh, <laughs> anyway, so they're, uh, uh, they got married recently, but she's living in Colorado currently, and he's just kind of wrapping up business, you know, and getting ready to move up there with her. So. Got you. Um, but uh, super nice guy. Like I said, known for years, and and one of the hardest workers I've ever met. Really? Uh, yeah. So that's really cool, man. Uh, it always seems like there's a lot of businesses in such a small area in Phoenix. Yeah. Um, another one too. A lot of nice cars came out of there. Was uh, RC. From oh, RC's yeah. garage. RC. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think it is about that area that just breeds so much of uh, the Honda community? I, I think it was kind of a combination of things. I think um, obviously Hasport being there and then uh, uh, Full Race. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Full Race uh, kind of jumped in there. Uh, Jeff Racer, the guy that owned Full Race, was actually a, a student at ASU and working for this guy, Max Rev, who did a lot of... Uh, Max Rev, yeah, Max Rev, who did a lot of uh, Porsche stuff and things like that. So Jeff kind of decided to do the turbo stuff with the Honda things. So so having those two business, Hasport and his business there, kind of uh, uh, ignited the, the scene a little bit more there in the Phoenix area. So uh, there was a, a, a lot of interesting stuff going on there, and that mm -hmm. usually attracts more people. So, you know, that stuff usually happens in clusters. You know, it's not usually very rarely you see some guy off by himself doing stuff i mean you see it occasionally but it's not a very common thing quite often things grow in clusters it's like it's like good tennis students you usually you have several people that kind of drive each other you know what i mean and they they kind of reach heights that you know wouldn't normally be reached if they weren't you know they're kind of egging each other on yeah. so that kind of helped because there was like probably three or four turbo kits there turbo companies there for a little while so it's yeah. kind of interesting how that i was gonna happened. say that it seems like a lot of uh a lot of turbo manifold companies come out of yeah. that area well you know what happens a lot of them are, are employees of uh full race and then yeah. they decide to go out and do it on their own so they're like oh he's making good money i can do that too you know kind of thing so <laughs> yeah. yeah and it, and it's funny because with a turbo with a turbo thing you know, Jeff has worked really hard to make good relationships with Borg Warner and Garrett and stuff like that. The other, you know, but there are a lot of other turbo companies out there, and a lot of people turbos are just basically plumbing. You know what I mean? It's uh, very easy to imitate somebody else's manifold rather than do the engineering yourself. You know, and 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 do that. So it's kind of you know a version of you know copying stuff. So yeah, yeah it seemed like there was a little bit of that out in uh, Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. I actually went out to, uh, when I went to visit you mm -hmm. that one time, That was I went for RC's, um, RC's it was yeah. like the third annual meet or second mm -hmm. annual meet or something like that. I went to your facility and then I ended up going to uh, Blackworks. Blackworks, yeah. And man, that, that place kind of surprised me. That was a pretty big facility, man. Yeah. It, it, uh, it was an interesting company. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they went down in flames eventually. Yeah. So. <laughs> It was crazy, man, because I, I would always hear things on the back end, you know, and mm -hmm. but then I would meet Tanner and he always seemed like a cool guy to me. Yeah. And well, I got along fine with him. <laughs> yeah. just, you know, 
<laughs> it was just a, a business thing, and I remember seeing him at H Day, and then it was probably like that next week. Mm-hmm. I seen uh, it all go down, and I was like, man. Yeah. <laughs> so sp- speaking about something like that, they, uh, I mean, no matter wh- who a person is or what, you know, I would never wish them bad, you know, because at the end of the day, they still have family, children, a wife, and they yeah. got, they got to, they got to focus on or they got to face yeah. that whatever they ended up doing so what are some business struggles that you've had and that you've been able to overcome and maybe that you can give advice to people to maybe navigate around it yeah not just in particular that situation but maybe something that's happened I, in I, your business yeah, i understand I'm, I'm trying to think of my brother and I have very different philosophies on employees. My philosophy is take new people in, you know, train them, you know, if they, sometimes people just want to settle down and be in your company and that, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Other times people, it's just a waypoint, you know what I mean? They want to learn some things and move on and, and I'm, and I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? I don't have, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I also feel like, if somebody's not working out, maybe find out if they're not a better fit somewhere else in the company. If you have that flexibility, or hmm. maybe just get rid of them okay. quickly. You know, it's uh, you get a feel for somebody when you're meeting them, and you you know think about how they're doing and stuff like that. And but if they're not doing well, you need to cut the tie quickly. You need to not you know string them along too much and stuff like that. My brother's much more about ah, he doesn't want confrontation it doesn't want to deal with he just wants people to shut up and do their job kind of thing yeah and i'm like going you're not happy here perhaps you should go somewhere else or i'm not happy with you here perhaps you should go somewhere else so yeah as a as a small business owner i find that being a very hard and uncomfortable conversation oh yeah so what's a way that you kind of navigate around that to make it uh not so confrontational or hurtful because you're you're changing somebody's day-to-day life right well two things number one it's not really my job Mm -hmm. uh it's my brother's job okay (laughs) okay so the reality of it is i usually bug him until he lets me do something okay so um but it doesn't always work out that way, you know? Um, and you have to, yeah, it's tough. You know, he, my brother's got a really good heart and he doesn't want to, when he hires somebody, he just wants them to do well and he just wants them to, to do well, you know, just do your job, yeah. you know? And uh, he gives them way too many chances. So I'm not as drastic as my, my wife would be if if it was just up to me i think i think there would be a few people that weren't there anymore hopefully yeah. this doesn't come as a surprise anyway <laughs> that's just the way it is um, i think bringing like i was saying i want to bring ashley on in the future i think maybe i could yeah. just leave that task up to her because she's <laughs> yeah is she ruthless yeah well, well she, she can be definitely can be? Okay. yeah not to me but yeah. her co-workers tell yeah. me okay. <laughs> she gets stuff taken care of that's good so i just like that <laughs> that's good man so um Let's rewind maybe about 2010, mm-hmm. 2011. Um, you start seeing uh, these hardware kits coming up that are going oh, yeah. to, <laughs> to, uh, 
to your uh, mount kits. Yeah, yeah. I never actually spoke to you on that. And there was a part of me that made me think, like, I don't know if this is kind of stepping on toes or anything. But uh, what, why? What, why? So, so I thought it was really cool. I just thought, hey, look at this. There's another business here, and they're taking care of these things. That's a really good idea. Yeah. I wasn't concerned one way or another. I wasn't. The only thing hardware-wise that I've ever thought about doing mm-hmm. is offering black hardware. Got you. That's the only thing I've ever thought that I think would be cool to do yeah. that I might do someday. Yeah. You know what I mean? But as far as the things you do, I think that's amazing. Thank you. I think that that is absolutely fine. You know, I I applaud you, and I think <laughs> you do a really nice job. Thank you. And I love seeing it on the cars, and I love seeing your posts, you know. And thank you very much for using my mounts when you put them up there. Oh, That's of course. Cool. Yeah, no, the, <laughs> yeah. it definitely um, definitely looks to great it together. Does. It looks great together. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. And uh, I've always appreciated the way that you've um, – that you've embraced us ever since the beginning and you've always been somebody that i looked up to as an inspiration well thank you definitely man it's like i i I look to do this for the next you know 20 30 years of my life and not just do hardware you know but just expand from here and see see what else we can do and i i myself like to help people out and you know hopefully make them realize their full potential and that's one of the reasons for this podcast you know having these conversations with influential people such as yourself and hopefully somebody could pick up some gems from this and you know use that Absolutely. tool in yeah. their life um so this question when i was asking the guys earlier uh maybe things that we could go over this was a really good question and it's something that I haven't been asking my guests, but I think this is going to be something mm-hmm. that I go on from now forward is who do you look up to as an inspiration? If anybody. My dad, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but uh, he was a pretty amazing individual. He, when, for numerous reasons, uh, when we were all little kids, uh, he uh, took on a hobby of gunsmithing so that he could shoot competitively. Yeah. So uh, that was kind of interesting to me that he did that. And his craftsmanship was amazing. And then after a while, he took up a, a side job of building model airplanes so he could compete with model airplanes. So he, he actually shot in the Pan American Games with Skeet and Shoot when he was doing the gun thing. But mm-hmm. anyway... Then he did the model airplane thing. So he's like national soaring champion in model gl- gliders, and he was like uh, did really well in pattern flying and um, and uh, quarter midget racing, which is like racing around pylons. And he did really well with that stuff, and that was that was really cool. And then um, when we got to be younger, you know, a little bit older, and we're into motorcycles, uh, he started racing motocross with us. You know, and he was in his thirties, and and he built my little brother Mark's motocross bike to be one of the fastest ones in Nebraska. My brother was like, you know, state champion up there back in, you know, the 70s. So we're, you know, I really love the fact that when he got into something, he dove into it wholeheartedly. And he was a super brilliant man. Oh, when computers first came out back in the 70s, mm-hmm. he taught himself how to program. And uh, he, wow. he worked uh, 
um, one of his jobs in the Air Force after he had graduated from uh, ASU with his electrical engineering job. Actually, they, he went back to school to get that uh, uh, degree. Uh, he actually wound up uh, programming the uh, work, heading the group that programmed the ICBM missiles uh, that were protecting us in in the 70s. So uh, he did that for a little while. So uh, uh, so he's something I definitely look to. He he would always learn new stuff and always be ready to do to do new things and and follow his passion. So that's one person. Um, and not to be corny, I've always looked up to Steve Jobs. <laughs> Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, I'm just astounded at his attention to deal. I can't be him. I mm-hmm. can never be him. I don't compare myself to him in any way, shape, or form. But I'm just astounded at what he was able to accomplish. He was a dick. Yeah, I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's some good advice there. You know, if you see the, some of the things he did, there there is that singular ability to cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of the, the heart of the matter is, is is extremely important. And and I do try to do that on occasion. Um, you know, there have been a lot of other people that I've really looked up to. Uh, I love Jeff Chichoff at Progress Group. Uh, I, <laughs> I love Dave. Dave Sue, yeah. you know, you know, I think he's uh, an interesting person. Uh, I love Oscar Jackson. That guy can get it fucking done sometimes. Uh, sometimes it takes him a little while, but sometimes, you know, you watch him work on a car and he's like so methodical and so quick and just does such an amazing job with things, you know. Uh, so uh, I'm impressed with the way you do your social media. Thank you. I think that's pretty amazing. Thank I you think so the much. fact that you got out there and, and, and keep people engaged with the interesting questions and interesting discussions, I think that's pretty amazing. Uh, so, Ryan, it's pretty amazing that you built up that business just on building wiring harnesses. I mean, we always did okay with that kind of stuff. But yeah. You've done a really good job with that stuff, so that's pretty Thanks. damn good. Yeah, not so much you. <laughs> 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 yeah. I love it. I love so, it, man. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and this guy, video game playing to an art. I remember back in the day at SEMA, you used to sit there and, and play the big video. The, <laughs> there when you were there with the Honda Acura Club. Oh, yeah. <laughs> man, it's crazy. Yeah. Brian, you're, you're like, you're the OG, man. Like, these no, guys a are, bunch of them. <laughs> these guys are my OGs, man. And, and the way that they talk about you is like the way that I talk about them, you know, and it's, it's so cool that we could just all sit in this room together and just reminisce about, Oh, it's you know, a blast. Absolute blast. This, this life that we've all created for ourselves. It's like, this is, this is really the one percenters, you know, these, these are the, we're the people that actually love our job that we do. And oh yeah. We've created a, a life out of a passion, you know, and I, yeah. I just hope that I wish everybody could feel this feeling, you know, yeah, of tomorrow's Monday, and can't I wait know to get back to work. All of us are excited to get back home so we can get back to work. Yeah, I got know? so much to do. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of uh, so much to do, um, yeah. what can we look for um, in the future of Passport? I think that the the L fifteen B seven turbo motor is going to give us another twenty years of swaps. You know what I mean? Wow. We've gotten. Uh, we're about half through, halfway through the K-series thing. The B-series thing, all still pretty popular, is on the, it's been on the long gotcha. downslope, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's still going well, very yeah. well. But obviously there's a finite version, the yeah. m- number of those. 
the case series there's probably two million of those still on the road mm-hmm. you know here in the u.s so uh that's still you know it has not peaked yet but it's uh but so reasonable in price now and stuff like that but think about the uh freaking l15 v7 there's gonna be more of those in just no time honest throwing that thing in everything mm-hmm. it's such a great motor and until they make the switch over totally to electric that's going to be that's going to be the engine you know what i mean it powers so much and the k20c is going to be the same way that turbo motor is going to be crazy it comes in the rdx comes in the cord comes in the type r that's going to and i think it's going to get a couple other cars too so that that engine is going to be around a long time and it's going to make great horsepower and, and it'll be interesting to see as the as the products catch up to it you know what i mean and more and more people figure out what works well with that particular engine it's just going to get better and better do you think that's the k swap of 0304 i think the l15 is yeah Uh, okay uh, yeah i think the l15 is i think the k20 is always going to be a little bit more rare and Mm -hmm. unless we can figure out a a a good transmission for it it's going to be more like the j series unfortunately so Ah, uh um, but you know i've got a few ideas so hopefully hopefully they work out you got a lot of ideas in there man i got ideas awesome brian Thank you so much for sitting down with us. I really appreciate it, man. Absolutely my pleasure. Anytime. Before we get out of here, where can people find you and uh, the uh, endeavors that you're working on? Well, you can always find me at Hasport. You can find me on Tuesday nights at Dos Gringos. (laughs) For now. For now. (laughs) You can find me on Facebook at Brian. Just look at Brian Gillespie, Brian at Hasport. I'm there. Brian at Hasport on Instagram. Gotcha. Uh, And... uh, Probably other places too, but they escape me at the moment. <laughs> you can find me at Ibach every every spring out there in uh Or at SEMA. Can we find you at SEMA this year? I'm usually I'll be there Tuesday and Wednesday this year. On Thursday I'm actually performing another wedding. So uh, I'll be back to Phoenix on Thursday. So the right. third and probably my final one. I think I'm gonna hang up my collar after that and yeah, not perform anymore. Really? But yeah, yeah. It's uh I it's it I love it. Uh-huh. but when it's coming up to it i'm like oh my god there's a chore oh my god i gotta do this oh and then i get down i'm like eh, it went pretty good <laughs> i should do this more often yeah. but then it'll time for the next one i'll be like mm, no i'm not gonna do it <laughs> so would you come out of retirement for riots oh yeah okay. absolutely Just there's a couple no, people no i come pressure. out of retirement for no pressure there's a couple people i come out of retirement for. <laughs> so. awesome man well like i said it was really good to talk to you i appreciate you making time man and i'm excited to see what you got in the future my pleasure so uh, once again, guys, Brian Gillespie, Hasport, um, episode 99. I, I appreciate you being here with this milestone. Uh, unfortunately, the 100th episode is going to be me and my family. So that one is going to be uh, no no guess. But this is, a, this is a great one, man. And I'm glad we made this, made this happen. I am too. I was yeah. looking forward to it for quite a while. And I kept meaning to come out to California and call on you. It just didn't work out like that. But... Rock and roll, man. Thank you so much. Once again, guys, episode 99. We out. Peace. Bye.